Assalamu alaikum and bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another incredible Saturday session. Um, inshallah, we're going to be covering right the third surah of the trilogy as we've talked about Yunus Hood and today Yusuf. So um, I know this is a really special surah. A lot of people, you know, especially even when we were talking about adopt a surah, there were a lot of people who really wanted to adopt this particular surah because Yusuf means so much to them. And, um, to people in their lives. Um, I, I'm looking forward to an, another incredible surah um, because again, unfortunately, continuing, um, Sheikh has been struggling with pain and, and issues, I mean, a lot of health issues. Um, and as I've said in the past, it's almost like um, exactly proportional to the incredible um, surah and halakha that we get here when we see how much he suffers and then shows up. Um, to deliver like a truly stunning surah like you have not heard anywhere else. And you know, sometimes it's a, it's a little bit hard um, not to feel a little bit bitter um, because when you recognize um, the specialness of what is taking place here, and you know, this is I guess part of my testimony as the wife of a scholar, you truly understand like, um, I think the health and the state of, of the Muslim, um, of the Muslim Ummah, right? And we talk about it here a lot, but, you know, like, you can't help but look around and wonder, okay, if we were approaching this project as a Jew, you know, a Jewish scholar approaching the Torah, or as a Christian scholar approaching the Bible, and really deeping, digging deep into a religious tradition and pulling out everything that would allow you to be a better religious adherent in your faith and feel connected and feel like, okay, I'm learning something that directly applies to what I see in the news, to how I interact with my friends, in, um, in terms of what I'm seeing on social media, even the songs that I listen to. Like I was driving around with Mito yesterday and he was playing for me some of his favorite songs and they're like, you know, kind of hip-hop-ish, you know, cool, whatever. Okay, guy with a Muslim name, right? And his story is that he struggled a lot with trying to come to America and immigration and all of this. And he writes a song called Letter to God. And I look at the words, I like ask him to pull up the words for me on, you know, on, on our iPhone and I'm looking at it and he's literally asking God like, okay, what, what up, why is life like this? You know, and, and I know from everything that I've learned here, here is a soul that is searching, longing for God and wondering why the world appears this way, why it's so difficult, how to understand it. You know, and when I can listen to a piece of music like that and recognize in a person, okay, this is a person who's searching and can benefit from even what we're, we're learning here. And he's got, you know, an Arab name. Maybe he's a Muslim. You know, um, and even when we watch like these crime shows on serial killers and, and evil people, you know, we were just watching one today um, about a guy who just literally went off the deep end. But you know, you could tell. I mean, he now he's perfectly aligned with 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 Satan. But all the people that he would attract were people who were searching and longing for God. And even watching the new Nicole Kidman <laughs> um, show on Hulu called Trillium, um, you know, it was really fun because it was, you know, it was about these nine characters that show up and they're trying to, you know, like basically, you know, they're longing for God. If I'm going to put it in Quranic terms, okay, <laughs> they're like longing for God, searching for something better. They want to redefine their lives. And you've got Nicole Kidman, this amazing actress that is, you know, trying, telling them, okay, I'm going to change your life and I'm going to give you the secret to living, to finding peace. 
and tranquility. And even in one scene, they're like doing something very Islamic where they're like digging graves and she's telling them, okay, climb in the grave and think about your life, you know? And I'm like, ah, they've co-opted something that's very Islamic. Read Al-Ghazali's book, uh, Death and Dying in um, the Islamic tradition, or I forget the name, but it's on death and dying. And, and you'll see that that's one, of the, that's one of the exercises. So I'm like, man. And of course, God is nowhere to be, to be seen. But, um, but back to this. So, you know, when you realize that so many people in this world are searching for meaning, searching for peace, and searching for, for something, you know, for purpose, and we get this here twice a week, um, you know, and in real detail. And then you start thinking about, okay, next week is the start of the law school semester. And so, you know, that is obviously going to affect some of the stuff that we're doing here. And, you know, you can't help but think about the Jewish scholars, the Christian scholars, and in their communities, how much support they get. If they were studying, you know, taking a group of students through a deep dive on their religious books, how much support would they get? A ton. I can answer that question right now. We would not be here carrying this by ourselves. So Sheikh has to go back to work. He has to go back to teaching. He's still struggling with a lot of illness, a lot of pain. Um, he doesn't even bother getting, you know, the, the respect or um, the support of Muslim communities, Muslim, you know, whether it's like people who know what he's doing, even Muslim scholars, you know, it's like people understand that, um, you know, it, it makes no sense in this day and age to be studying um, the Quran or, you know, or because it just, you know, who does that, right? Who does that? But we do it. We do it here. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I've had enough experiences um, with people over the years who deal with their, I guess, maybe, I think, guilt of not supporting by saying, oh, well, your reward is with Allah. Yes, the, you know, yes, it's true. Sheikh's reward is with Allah, but that doesn't remove your responsibility in, in also, you know, playing a support. So I am just disappointed when it comes to, you know, thinking about, okay, in a few days we're, we're going to be starting. We've got to start doing the syllabus. We've got to start thinking about teaching class. we got, you know, and these are time-intensive, time energy-draining activities. You know, imagine what it's like to come here and teach six hours of halakha. And then, you know, now add into that, you know, forget all the preparation and all of that, doing that twice a week. Now you've got to insert a four-unit class that meets two hours twice a week and all the preparation that goes into teaching public international law. And what is it for? You know, other people can teach public international law, but how many Muslim scholars do we know that can teach the Quran to us like this? So it is a bit hard not to be bitter and a bit hard not to be disappointed that, you know, people, Muslims, don't see, Muslims who need so badly a reconnection to the Quran. I mean, listen to the khutbahs each week just to see the state of the Muslim Ummah and how ill we are and how completely unable we are to find strength or even inspiration in the Quran um, and how it could really turn everything around if we would just understand the Quran in the way we're learning it here. So, but yes, um, you know, um, hopefully our reward is with Allah, you know, when it matters, but we would love to see it have an impact in the here and now. But as we've learned in the Holocaust, we may not see the impact of what we're doing um, long until, you know, long after. And, and, you know, that is nothing that we can control. We do the best that we can um, and we leave the, the results to Allah. Um, as long as we, we, you know, know that Allah, I mean, we know Allah sees everything that we're doing and knows how much, you know, every, all of us are putting into this project. May Allah reward everyone who's given, um, you know, love and support and, and help in whatever way they can. 
Um, but I also, I, I also take a lot of comfort in, um, you know, one of the lessons that I learned very early on when I met, um, when I met the professor, and he said to me, you know, in our tradition, even if there's only one person on the face of this earth that believes, you know, even if it's just you and God that has that message, um, that's enough. You know, and so it's okay that, you know, if, if the only people that recognize the specialness of this are the people that are seated here and that are connected and that join us, you know, online or that watch videos after the fact or that just know who we are and are saying everything that they can to tell their friends, hey, this is important. Everyone who understands how important this is, you know, it's a very small group. And as we learned in the Halakha, I think it was last week, you know, that Allah tells us it's a small group that will really understand. Even if it's just us, that's enough, and we're doing everything that we can, and Allah knows everything that we're doing. But um, so I, I pray, inshallah, that um, that this message will will get out. It will resonate with more people because we so badly need it. But all of it, just to say, um, you know, please um, pray for Sheikh. Um, it's going to start getting a lot more difficult um, in the next few days, and for the next semester, and you know, forward after that. Demands are going to increase. You know, now it's not just people writing to us about questions about Islam or the Quran or you know their personal situations or whatever it is. Now it's going to be all the academic demands that come with teaching class and you know whatever, all of that that comes with that. So um, you know this is you understand it's a lonely road for a scholar, especially when you don't have the support of your community, your fellow ummah. You know, um, but inshallah, um, I pray that Allah will, will help us and, and help us complete this project and um, continue to, you know, be with us and give, give Sheikh strength and, and patience, um, you know, to, to continue on what has been an extremely lonely road as a scholar um, pretty much all of his life. Um, so, and I, I just wanted to add this testimony so people can start to at least understand a little bit um, what goes into, you know, keeping this this Quran project alive um, while we're, you know, still trying to um, teach and, and, and Sheikh is making a living. So that's the reality of our situation. So anyway, um, I'm looking forward to an incredible surah and inshallah, um, may, may we all fully appreciate um, and internalize the lessons. Thank you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الوقدة من لساني يفقه قولي الله So inshallah now we talk about سورة يوسف And as we said before, after the Isra, Surat Yunus was revealed, and then after Yunus, Surat, Surat Hud, and then after Surat Hud came Surat Yusuf. Um, after Surat Yusuf, most likely it was Surah Al-Hijr, which we talked about. Uh, but if you go back to Surah Al-Hijr, you see that it is a, a narrative 
on a theme of its own. But the the one of the things, inshallah, that we will do is to show why Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf are revealed one after another, and each of them bearing the name of a prophet. Um, and notice that each of these surahs deal with an element of harm and suffering. We saw this very clearly in Surah Hud, in Surah Yunus. We came back to the same element in Surah Hud, but in Surah Hud, suffering is because of a moral failure. And both Yunus and Hud set up the framework by telling us that the problem is human beings are often their relationship to suffering is one where they react to suffering by um, superficially. So when things are going well, they often forget their dependence on anything or their need for God. And when suffering comes in, they might remember um, or they might despair. And often suffering is the result of their own failure to establish justice and their own failure to have a meaningful relationship with Allah. And that, but although they might be reminded briefly during periods of suffering and gain some deeper insight about things, once the suffering ends, they quickly forget and go back to their old habits and their old patterns. And this was set up for us with the reality in Surat, as we talked about in Surat Yunus, that ultimately it is not about the heroic savior but about a people saving themselves. And if you recall, we, we talked about this very clearly in that prophet after prophet failed to save their people. And the only example of a people that are saved are a people that even after their prophet despaired, not only did they um, relent, but they actively achieve justice. 
And in Surat Hud, the message even becomes more clear that Allah helps those who are just and that Allah helps those who understand that life is about an ethical code, an ethical system, an ethical existence, and pursue that and achieve it, and do not allow harm to deter them from that goal. So then comes Surat Yunus, that's Surat Yusuf. And Surat Yusuf, of course, it has plays because of the language, because of so many, because in part of its relationship to the Bible, because of course Surat Joseph is, or Joseph, the story of Joseph is in the Bible. Um, Surat Yusuf in the Islamic tradition becomes the, the locus for an enormous amount of spirituality and uh, romanticism, uh, remarkable poetry, remarkable imagery. It, 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 it becomes romanticized in a variety of ways, nearly becoming sort of a love story. Um, which is fine, except that, except that a lot of this tradition completely misses the relationship between Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf, and because of that, a lot of this romanticized tradition misses the point about Surat Yusuf. If you read Surat Yusuf as if you're reading literature, you might not at all get the moral point that Surat Yusuf is making. And unfortunately, this is the way Surat Yusuf or Joseph is told in the Bible. If you read Surat Joseph in the Bible, you don't get a moral point. It's sort of, you wonder what the point might be other than this sort of story about a family, a, a lost child, a family found, a, a lost love, and so on. And unfortunately, many Quranic commentators fail to notice the enormous difference between the biblical narrative about Joseph and the Quranic narrative about Yusuf. 
the differences between the two are extremely significant. And not just significant, but it, it tells you that you know this is not uh, this is not a, a, a someone just copying a, a text. The the, uh, the the differences are material, and they go to the core of the message of Surah Yusuf. So let's start the, the journey. And here with Surah Yusuf, we don't need to pause at every ayah, because, but, but I would like to read through it anyway, um, just so we make sure that we're following the narrative and we're understanding what's going on. And then, inshallah, we come to the end, I'll connect it, or I'll make the connections that we need to understand. So, Alif Lam Ra, which immediately we notice this is the same beginning for Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf. And as we said before, once we see the Alif Lam Ra, we understand that we are dealing with something that is core to the Quranic message. And that automatically should pose the question, what might that be? What might this message be? Tilka ayatu kitab al so after Alif Lam Ra, we again have a beginning that reminds us of the beginning of both Yunus or especially Yunus, that Allah alerting us that this book has a special function. And when Allah calls this book Al-Kitab Al-Mubin, the book Al-Kitab Al-Mubin means the book that clarifies things, clarifies between right and wrong, between dark and light. It is not, Al-Kitab Al-Mubin, it is the book that clarifies an ethical path of life, as we said about As-Sirat Al-Mustaqim. If you recall, but when we talked about the Surat al-Mustaqim. إِنَّ أَنزَلْنَاهُ قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ Again, an affirmation that Arabic is a chosen language because of the people that it was directly revealed to, but as 
we will see in, 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 in later on this constant emphasis in the Quran that the only way you can understand how this is a kitab mubin, how this is a clarifying book, an ethically elucidating book, the only way is by applying a rationalistic, analytical inquiry to the text. So, when you find people that tell you you read the Quran, but you put your reason to the side, it is directly contradicted by the text of the Quran. Or those who read the Quran as if they are engaging in some type of ritualistic practice, so they, they just read it when someone dies, or read it when someone is born, or read it when on occasions, just for the blessings again. The Quran doesn't yield anything unless those who read it bring intelligence to it. This is a critical point. An unintelligent person reading the Quran will yield very little if in fact if not yield the opposite of what the Quran says. In order for the Quran to yield its benefits, like every ethical text, by the way, it needs intelligence. It needs the love of knowledge, the love of inquiry. This is why you cannot read the Quran like people read the Bible. People read the Bible as if it's a hymn, as if it's a song, as if it's a story. Modern Muslims read the Quran and understand nothing of it. Because they think that they need to check their reason out or put their reason to the side as they read the text. And as I have shown time and time again, in fact, it is the intellect that it can engage the text of the Quran and illustrate time and time again that this is a book of an ethical path of life. So, نحن نقص عليك أحسن القصص بما أوحينا إليك هذا القرآن وإن كنت قبل وإن كنت من قبله لمن الغافلين. So normally, this is translated that we recount to you, Muhammad, the most beautiful stories. As we, when we reveal to you this, the Quran. And you, Muhammad, before that, didn't know these beautiful stories. This translation is quite unfortunate. Because Ahsan Qasas, most beautiful stories, it would imply that we are telling you a fairy tale. We are telling you something to entertain you. 
like a thousand and one nights. Ahsan Qasas has a genealogy in language. Ahsan Qasas, like Ahsan Qawl or Ahsan Hadith, can only be said about the most moralistic discourse. It's not a point of balagha, it's not a point of eloquence. So it is like Allah saying, we are going to tell, we tell you narratives that have a point, that are anchored in meaning. You didn't know narratives or these types of narratives that are anchored in meaning before the revelation of the Quran, and that makes perfect sense because the Prophet might have known some of the mythology of the Arabs. He might have heard some of the mythology, some of the stories that are floating around. But that's a far cry, there is a far cry between the mythologies of Persia and the mythologies of Arabia and the mythologies of India that, and the pointed ethical discourse of the Quran. And with this very brief introduction, but it anchors you. So it's telling you, this isn't, you know, if you're going to read this for entertainment, or you're going to treat, to treat this like you treat the story of Joseph in the Bible, you're not going to get anything out of it. And yet, unfortunately, so many Muslims dealt with this story, with this surah precisely like that. Although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alerts us at the very beginning that that's not what you should, that that's, you shouldn't do that. So then it begins right away. قَالَ يُوسُفُ لِأَبِيهِ يَا أَبَتِ إِنِّي رَأَيْتُ أَحَدَ عَشْرَ كَوْكَبًا وَالشَّمْسَ وَالْقَمَرَ رَأَيْتُهُمْ لِي سَاجِدِينَ قَالَ يَا بُنَيْ لَا تَقْصُصْ رُؤْيَاكَ عَلَى إِخْوَتِكَ فَيَكِيدُ لَكَ كَيْدًا إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ لِلْإِنسَانِ عَدُوٌ مُبِينٌ وَكَذَلِكَ يَشْتَبِيكَ رَبُّكَ وَيُعَلِّمْكَ مِنْ تَأْوِيلِ الْأَحَدِيثِ وَيُتِمُّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ وَعَلَى آلِ يَعْقُوبَ كَمَا أَتَمَّهَا عَلَى أَبَوَيْكَ مِنْ قَبْلُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْحَاقَ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ So, what, a bit of a background, Yaqub, as we know, was of course the descendant of the Prophet Ibrahim salam and the Prophet Ishaq, Isaac salam had a number of children from different wives. In English, of course, Yaqub is Jacob, right? And from his wife, Rahil, or 
I think it's in English, Rachel. He had, there's Yusuf and Benjamin, or in English, Benjamin. And from a cousin of his, he has, I think, seven children. And then from two slave women, he has, I think, four children. And although the Quran doesn't tell us the, in, in the Bible and in various mythological narratives, um, his relationship with Rahil is special. And so Yusuf or Joseph and Benjamin or Benjamin are full brothers. And the others are all half-brothers from different mothers. When the, the context of this dream that Yusuf comes and tells his father is that he's, he saw planets. In the tradition, there's a lot of you read a lot of stuff about with the names of these planets and you know anyway um, you need to weed out so much accumulated nonsense um, in order to, to to get to the moral lesson of the story so anyway so he sees the planets and the sun and moon in some form honoring him and when he tells his father, his father says, his, his main concern is, well, don't tell your brothers because this will ignite their envy and will cause them to harm you. So immediately, we are alerted to a moral defect. We and to a, a possible tension. The moral defect that we are alerted to is that the brothers seem to have, who are older, seem to have a serious problem with Joseph and the possibility that Joseph would outshine them. That gives us not a very good sense about their spirit. If you are so envious that if you suspect that someone is destined to a high position, that might actually make you harm that person you have a serious moral defect. But there is an, an, an ethical tension here. The brothers complain in the same surah that they feel that Joseph is loved by their father 
more than their father loves them. All the romanticized readings of Surat Yusuf and all the biblically influenced readings of Surat Yusuf ignore this fact. Where does the problem arise? Could it possibly arise in the, the failure of the father or the inability of the father to communicate to the children that they are all loved equally? The Quran presents us with a problem, but it makes it clear that the gripe, the, the, the complaint of the brothers is that they say Yusuf is more beloved to our father or is loved by our father more than our father loves us. Now, notice that at this point, we know that Jacob, Yaqub, as a prophet and as an Israelite prophet, he knows something. He, he, we don't know how much revelation he receives from Allah. The Quran doesn't tell us. We don't know to what extent his knowledge is divinely based or divinely inspired or what precisely is encompassed within his prophecy. But we, we do know that he knows enough to just tell his son, well, keep this to yourself. Don't tell your brothers. Okay. And he sees in, in Yusuf a continuation of the legacy of Ibrahim and Ishaq Isaac and Ibrahim was saying, well, you know, maybe this vision that you've had, this dream that you've had, it means that you have a special role to play like your um, your grandparents, Ibrahim and Isaac. Now, next the Quran says, لَقَدْ كَانَ فِي يُوسُفِ وَإِخْوَتِهِ آيَةٌ لِلسَّائِلِينَ this is seven. So when the Quran tells us that Ayatul Sa'ilin, that these are, there are, they are, in this story are signs, means that this is a moral lesson. Confirming what, again, it's as if the Quran is reminding us that I'm not going to tell you something just to entertain you or just to move your emotions. There is a narrative in the tradition 
Um, again, like a lot of the Ezraite, the, the types of narratives that Orientalists love, um, that the Meccans wanted to know if Muhammad was a real prophet, so they go to a Jewish tribe and then they tell them, uh, well, how can we know if Muhammad is a real prophet? So they say, well, ask Muhammad what made the Al Yaqub, the uh, the family of J of uh, Jacob, move from Asham from Syria to Egypt, and the the Meccans go and ask the prophet, and then the surah is revealed. And as typical of these Ezraite type traditions, they, they constantly make it sound as if the Quran, even the Quran of Mecca, was revealed in response to, Jew, to Jewish challenges. And as I said, this is, these are the types of narratives that Orientalists love. Um, but I, I most certainly this tradition is on is not authentic. The, both in terms of change of transmission, in terms of who narrates it, in terms of when it's narrated, in it's it, it talks about a Medinian concern about in around the the idea that. People of Quraysh would go to the Jewish tribes and Medina to consult them. It's just, um, it, it smacks of the type of Israelite traditions that were contrived um, and don't hold much weight. The reason I say that is that some have said when Ayah number seven says, Ayatul Nisa'ideen, they say, oh, well, you know, here it's saying, look, there are people who are asking what the story of Joseph and his brothers are, and so here's the answer. Uh, God is going to tell you the story, which is, you know, uh, it's unbecoming of the Quranic revelation. And when, when you find, unfortunately, some of Ahl al-Hadith go out of their way to try to authenticate these traditions, it's again, as I say, intelligence is needed to be applied to the text of the Quran. Uh, you're going out of your way to authenticate things because you lack that intelligence, unfortunately. Okay, so eight is called. This is the point that, I, this is verse 8, the point that I refer to. When I was a, when I was a child, um, this ayah always bothered me. And I remember I just once asked my mother, um, why would a father love two of his children, the two of course are Binyamin and Yusuf, um, the, the daughters of Rahil, or sorry, the, the children of Rahil. And, uh, you know, is, is this right? 
And I, I just it stuck with me. My, my mother's response was, the reason Allah tells us about this is to tell us that this is wrong. And that the type of, the type of problems that grew out or that emerged is precisely why it's wrong. Um, I wish a lot of Quranic commentators had the, the, the moral clarity that my mother had. Okay, so this Osba, this the the older brothers says say, well, if we get rid of Yusuf, who is older than Ben Yamin, and here is a is a, a tidbit that their thinking is the classic thinking of so many people who do wrong things. They they're thinking this one thing, just one thing, and then after that we'll be good people. So we get rid of Yusuf and then repent and then be moral human beings. Now, of course, if you're paying attention to the rest of the narrative of Surah Yusuf, these brothers don't get their moral act together until, in fact, I mean, according to narratives not part of the Quran, until they finally make peace with Yusuf years later. But the, 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 this is a point that cannot be ignored. That so many people, in fact, commit what is wrong, do what is wrong, because they think, well, just this one thing, and then we'll get our act together after this. And it's rarely the case that it works that way. Because ethics is an attitude. Ethics is, is a commitment. You might falter, but you don't plan to falter. There's a difference between weakening and planning the failure. If you plan a failure, that's a great ethical failure. Those who constantly weaken and then ask Allah for forgiveness are morally superior to those who think they are living ethically but plan an occasional failure in order to achieve an advantage. And this is, although not a common point in Quranic commentators, but among some theologians, like for instance, Sahrawardi, who points this out as a, as a clear unequivocal point. Okay. So 
they, as you know, initially conspire or agree that we should kill Yusuf. And one of the brothers come up, comes up with the idea, well, you know, why kill him? Let's just get rid of him. And if we get rid of him, if we put him in an area where we desert him, basically, and prevent him from coming back home, we know what his fate will be. And according to the old Near Eastern law, if you are found in bondage or found having been abandoned by your family or your tribe, then you can be enslaved. You can lawfully be enslaved and sold into slavery. So they knew very well that if they managed to put Yusuf in a state that communicates to people that this is a man without a tribe or has been abandoned by his clan, then enslaving him would be fair game. And the chances that he would come back home will be practically none. Okay. So, as I'm sure you you know, they come to their father and they say, send him with us, we'll take care of him. There is a considerable amount of disagreement as to how old Yusuf was. You know, some say, as, as some said that as old as 17, that's not likely because of to say, send him with us so that he can uh, play and have fun, uh, that doesn't sound like a 17-year-old. A 17-year-old in this age was an adult. Um, while others said that he was seven years old or nine years old, which is probably more closer to, which was probably closer to the truth that he was a young boy. I mean, obviously conscious, as we will see in a second. Um, and the father's concern about Yusuf being eaten by a wolf. This point, this, this little point, gave the moralistic Quranic commentators like Razi serious pause. Because If he was really concerned that Yusuf would be eaten by a wolf, then it would seem that the answer is, well, make sure you don't go to dangerous places where a child might be grabbed by a wolf, because that would be, for a child to be grabbed by a wolf, 
it would have to be an area where there are packs of wolf that are fairly hungry, that are aggressive enough to attack a child and grab the child away. So Jacob, was Jacob really concerned about a wolf, about a wolf or did he suspect that his children were up to no good? And especially that he warns Yusuf at the beginning about the dream. There is a further thing that it's sort of a, is that according to the Bible, news of the dream leaks to the brothers. That I forgot to tell you that Yusuf's mother died at birth. Died when she gave birth to his brother, uh, Benjamin, to Benjamin. So his mother is not around. So he he has a stepmom. His father then married, I believe, her cousin or her sister. I don't remember. I think her name was Leah. Anyway, but. Reportedly, Yusuf tells his sister about the dream and his sister unintentionally leaks the dream to the brothers. So there's an interesting question, of course, what if the if the father suspected the intentions of his children, that their intentions could be so bad as to be, in fact, so ill-willed towards their own brother, why let him go? And the more moralistic Quranic commentators paused at this and some of them inclined towards the view that Yaqub was divinely inspired like Ibrahim when he is inspired to um, sacrifice his son, that Yaqub was divinely inspired to let fate run its course, so to speak. Others said that Yaqub was not divinely inspired but that he was in a very difficult moral point. He had no evidence of ill will. And all the presumptions should go in favor of the siblings. But did he err when he let go of Yusuf. And it's very interesting because 
I've always, some scholars said, no, he erred because this is not a legal case. And it is enough for a parent to rely on intuition and nothing but intuition. And Allah is basically saying, if you feel it, then it's right. While others said that no, a parent has to demonstrate moral uprightness in telling the children, I trust you and I will give you fair chance and process until you prove otherwise. It's very interesting and I'm not sure how I fall on this point because I've wavered you know, I, when I was younger, I tended to be among the moralistic school of thought that no, you, you know, there's no evidence against them, then you have to give them the fair chance. And until they screw up, you can't condemn them. And then as I became a father, I switched and became among the intuitive bunch. You have a duty to protect your children, even if there is no evidence. Um, but then it occurred to me that maybe the point is for Allah to have me reflect upon the fact that I switched. I saw different aspects of justice that I wouldn't have seen except for the fact that I thought one way before being a father and thought a different way after being a father. Um, everything in the Quran is intentional. And if you, and I keep saying this, that if you befriend the Quran, it befriends you back and it allows you to see so much about the world that you live in. Okay, not in the Quran, but from narratives uh, from various reports that when they took Yusuf to the location, they wanted to leave, leave him in a, in a, in a well that is not, not a deep well, but one of these desert wells that is like a hole and, and it's, it's not very deep, but then you would be able to climb out of it. So that they first tried to leave him, he, he started crying and trying to follow him and follow them. So they beat him up and then he's, every time he would yell for help from, you know, call one of his brothers to help him. You, you would find that this brother is part of, the, part of the conspiracy and then that they threw him in the hole and then he tried to climb up and, every, and then they would beat him and then he would... And so it's a very dramatic, painful story where this child is crying and being... And then eventually they tie him up and put him in the hole and leave him. And by doing that, they've now ensured that whoever finds Yusuf is going to enslave him. A tied up child 
means an abandoned child. And according to the law of the time, you have no clan, then you're, then you're a fair slave. And, and of course, they did the, the stupid thing in that they took his clothes and needed his clothes so they can put blood of an animal on the clothes so they, they can tell the father, um, well, the wolf ate him. Well, it's a stupid thing because the clothes were not torn. You know, if a wolf eats someone, the, 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 the clothes will show the evidence of fangs. But that apparently eluded them. And so they left Joseph naked in the hole and a passing caravan finds this child tied in the hole. Now, look, the Quranic expression, this is 19 and 20. This is 19 and 20. Again, the more moralistic Quranic commentators noted in the Quranic expression in verse 19, we'll just see how it was translated. Yeah, the Qustani the, the Quran translated as, and they hid him as merchandise. Well, that translation doesn't make any sense. Hid him where? Hid him from what? You find the child abandoned, translated as hid him. What are you hiding him from? There is it's another meaning is that they thought little of him, so they treated him as merchandise. And the more moralistic Quranic commentators noted that it is immoral to treat a human being as merchandise. Something that unfortunately there are scholars today that want to insist that's not a part of the Islamic tradition. But the more moralistic Quranic commentators like Razi or in the some even in the writings of Ghazali, or in, even Ibn Arabi, that some of course said that he shouldn't have been treated as merchandise because he's a prophet. But 
At that point, no one knows he's a prophet. He's just a child. وَشَرُوهُ بِثَمَنٍ بَخْسٍ دَرَاهِمَ مَعْدُودًا وَكَانُوا فِيهِ مِنَ الزَّاهِدِينَ You have to pause here because the Quran tells you that they looked at him as worth very little. Why does the Quran tell you that? Again, you have to reflect upon the moral point. Human beings think, they, assert, they put value on things based on circumstantial conditions that ultimately lack knowledge of Allah's true purposes. In Allah's plan, this human being is worth a great deal. But in the way human beings treated this individual, they treated him as worth very little. And the style of the Quran here carries a clear indication of moral condemnation of the fact that they thought that they thought so little of this child that they found abandoned. In some of the Sufi-esque literature, this is of course you know, in a lot of in, in a lot of the Sufi literature, they they, they tell you that you you can't that this is you can't um, you know they'll go through the litany of why it's morally wrong to look at a poor person or a sick person or a weak person and to think that you know their moral worth because a lot of Sufism is anchored on that. But in some of the Sufi literature in particular, it, it, focused, it focused on the human tendency to see the child of a prince or the child of a king and say, well, that's worth a lot. He's, that person is worth a lot. While the an orphan abandoned in the desert, desert and say, He's worth nothing. And to say that precisely, part of the moral lesson is the fallacy in human judgments. As we will see when we rev up to the, to the, to the point of Surah Yusuf. Because notice, Surah Yusuf and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Surat Yusuf, it like walks you through the, a, 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 a whole series of flawed human judgments. Human, it's like humans messing up time and time and time again because they don't know Allah's plan. If they knew Allah's plan, 
their, their decisions would be very different. But that's the whole point. That is the whole point. Is because you don't know Allah's plan, you can't make judgments the way the people in Surah Yusuf made their judgments. Including, and, and I, I just remember this, including the judgment that, well, we are the adult children. Our father has us. Why does our father need these young kids? I mean, we as adult children, we contribute to bringing in an income and feeding the family which as you know, in the pre-modern times, that's the priority. You know, you have children to help you survive. These children, Yusuf and Benjamin, are burdens upon a family and are not worth the effort. Well, again, part of the legacy of Surah Yusuf is that they turn out to be the most valuable members of the family. Okay, so they take the child with them to Egypt and sell, sell him to um, I don't know how to pronounce that word I can see it but I don't know how to pronounce it the um, It's pop something. Let's just call him the minister. So they sell him to the, a, someone who works in the service of the ruler of Egypt, who at the time reportedly, at the time were under the, the rule of the Hexus, which just a, a, a side note, Egypt, like so many countries in the Near East, was ruled by, at one point by Persians, at another point by Arabs, at another point by uh, people from the desert, who's, you know, who's, who, who came from Palestine and Syria. Um, the claim that you find among Arabs today of ethnic purity, when Egyptians say, like Coptic Egyptians, for instance, say we're the original Egyptians, we're pharaohs, or Lebanese say we're Phoenicians, or is an is among the stupidest things you could hear. Egypt, the Arabic language, and the mingling with and Hebrews in itself is an Arabic dialect, by the way. It's not a separate language. But the Arabization of Egypt occurred long before Islam. And there is no ethnic purity anywhere in the Near East. The Near East is not even in Persia. I mean, it's a mythology. The Near East is the, the, the example par excellence 
of an ethnic melting pot. So it's truly sad when you find Near Easterns these days try to imitate their Western colonizers in claiming some ethnic purity of one form or another. Well, if they just bother to get some their DNA analyzed, they'll discover that they have everything on the face of their on the face of their earth and their blood. Okay. I say this because of the rulers of Egypt at the time that Yusuf is, who um, well anyway. So so here then notice. 22. So, at this time, we know that Yusuf is raised in Egypt from the age of abandonment and he is, although there is an idea of treating him like a son. We don't know if he's treated like a son. But, and again, I'm, 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 distinguish the Quranic narrative from the biblical narrative, because if you don't, things can get very confusing. In the Quranic narrative, when he reaches, and the Qur'an said, says, Ashuddahu. Now, that age, there are various reports as to at what point that, is it 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, um, and when, what the Quran says is that we brought him wisdom and knowledge, which is usually what the Quran says if, if it means he was now chosen for his prophecy. If you pause and reflect and say who raised Yusuf, Well, he has his memory from his father, Jacob, who's old enough to have some experiences. And he has the traumatic memory of the betrayal of his siblings and the beating and the abandonment. But he is raised in a palace with Moral, morals that are, let's say, distinctly ethical, as the story of Moses, Yusuf. Again, this gives pause and gave pause to a number of theologians. It 
is this, did, did he attain this moral status because he's a prophet? Or is he like the Prophet Muhammad where it is he perfected himself morally and then the prophecy came to him? Why is this important? Because it goes back to the consistent question of how much of ethical consciousness is reachable by intellectual and intuitive learning. Would it put differently, someone raised in a palace, a found child raised in a palace, if he did not have the morals of Yusuf, would he deserve moral condemnation? This, for those who read the Quran carefully, is a very serious question because of what will ne unfold next, and especially how Yusuf will be tested. Okay, so right after Right after, it tells us we honored him, immediately it gets into the story of the seduction. So, Zuleikha, who has become a very famous character in a lot of romantic narratives, is obsessed with Yusuf. And she's obsessed with Yusuf because he reportedly is very beautiful. This is 20, look at 23. So, she says, uh, this is a study Quran says, but she in whose house he was staying sought to lure him for, from himself. She locked the doors and said, come. He said, Ma'az Allah, is like I, I seek refuge in Allah. Uh, I don't like so, so he said, Allah has treated me well. Allah has taught me well. Those who are unjust will not prosper. So, his re reaction to this temptation is to say, I know better. God has taught me better. And this is a form of transgression. Vum. That knowledge, 
Is it intuitive or is it revelation? Most of those who struggled with this issue ended up saying that it's intuitive. Especially that Zulaikha was someone in a trusted relationship. She was married to the person I called the minister. She was in Yusuf's life as he was growing up. She is what we would call today a stepmom, right? So some said, and here I'm summarizing just a, a lot of, that he understood the concept of betrayal. Aside from whether sex outside of marriage is transgression or not, others said that no, he understood that sex outside of marriage in itself is transgression and not just betrayal. But then Another thing that engaged the Islamic tradition, verse 24, This is 24, I hope. She indeed inclined toward him and he would, would have inclined toward her had he not seen the proof of his Lord. Thus it was that we might turn him away from evil and indecency. Truly he was among our sincere servants. Now notice that the way they translated it is to sort of skirt the issue. He, she inclined towards him and he would have inclined towards her. But that's not what it says. What it says, وَلَقَدْ هَمَّتْ بِهِ وَهَمَّ بِهَا so the big debate in the Islamic tradition is this. Some said that he is a prophet and he is described among the mukhlasin. Mukhlasin means high status. And those who are of that status it was for them unthinkable that they be that he be tempted, sexually tempted by her. So they rejected the idea that she was tempted and he was and he was tempted and said, read Hammet Bihi Hamma Biha in sometimes in odd ways, to even go as far as saying reading it, that she hit him and he hit her back. Because that, that's one of the meanings of, that you could understand by Hamlet. Uh, I, I think that meaning is ridiculous, that they, they went into some boxing match. Bismillah ar rahim I just noticed that um, 
it's really interesting because Muhammad Asad, the way uh, he translates it, is uh, gets to, to to this point. So for the same ayat that we were talking about, he says, "But Joseph answered, May God preserve me. Behold, goodly has my master made my stay in this house. Verily to no end come they that do such wrong. So in Muhammad Asad's translation, he, he gets to the point that the intuitive moral law, wrong he is aware of is betraying those who raised him in the house. The, this goes back to the, the, the point I was making, the debate about whether it's the treachery, the betrayal, or uh, the sexual conduct itself. Then he translates after that, and it says, and indeed she desired him, and he desired her, and he would have succumbed had he not seen in this temptation an evidence of his sustainer's truth. Thus, he willed it to be in order that we might avert from him all evil and all deeds of abomination. For behold, he was truly one of our servants. Uh, and this again goes back to this debate that I was talking about, that the, the first school said it is impossible for him to have been tempted and that we can't understand this to mean that she was tempted and he was tempted and he would have succumbed except for. Um, and they insisted that because he's a prophet. And some of them even interpreted Hamma biha wa Hamad bi, as I said, in rather a, 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 a ridiculous way because it, it takes it to an extreme that it, it ended up in a fist fight. Um, but the second school, which said, no, in fact, she, she was tempted. Obviously, she was pursuing him. She initiated but he was tempted as well. So, and then they come to this point of what is, what did he see? What is the sign of his Lord that, they, that he saw that made him call halt to the temptation? And here you get some, some narratives, not, none of them are reliable. Some, for instance, say that as things were about to begin, that she covered, uh, she had an idol standing on a table, and she threw a piece of cloth on the idol, because, and she said, what we're about to do, I don't want to see God, the idol, God, um, see us doing it, and Joseph, thought, well, if she's embarrassed because of an idol, how about God? None of these reports are reliable, and many of them are, are frankly taken from the biblical narrative. Others said, and this is the, that the call of the conscience, and this for people like Ibn Arabi or even Sahrawardi or so that the call of the conscious itself is Murhana Rabb. That 
when your conscience, that, that first element where the conscience comes and says, this is wrong, that's God's message to you. And you have the choice. Either you respond to it or you ignore it. By ignoring it, you become among the transgressors. By responding to it, and if you respond to the call of your conscience, conscience, a sufficient number of times, you become among the mukhlasin, among those who are close to Allah. This, you see how the story is raising layers about the nature of human beings, the nature of right and wrong. Okay, so when he, at this point, decides to get out of there, and as you probably know, he tries to get away, go for the door, and she grabs onto him. And at this point, they find the husband, when they open the door, the husband is standing right there. And of course, the question is, what the heck is going on? They're sort of... And Yusuf comes out and just says it plainly. That she has pursued me. She grabbed onto my clothes. And someone, the Quran doesn't tell us who the someone is. You get, because in the biblical narrative, some pretty um, fantastical stories about who the someone is, including that he was a baby in the cradle who spoke in the cradle and things like that. But anyway, that basically it is someone who was from a relative of hers said, well, let's seek rational means of analyzing the evidence. And this is the, uh, probably all of you have heard the, that if his shirt is torn from behind, that means he was trying to get away and she grabbed him from the, from the back. But if his shirt was torn from the front, then he was attacking her and she was trying to push him away. And the Quran notes that when they found that in fact the circumstantial evidence supports his story, they decided to do what happens in many unjust societies. Her husband is an influential man. She's the wife of an influential man. And it doesn't look good for there to be a stink about how the wife has the hearts for her, her uh, adopted son. And so they decide to cover up the scam, so to speak, not the scam, the, the um, cover up the, um, scandal. The, the scandal by imprisoning him anyway. Now, 
so many Muslims, especially in the modern age, pass over this point like it's nothing. But in the Islamic tradition, this becomes one of the points that feeds the growth of Islamic law. In, un, in just societies, you develop objective standards to analyze the evidence, as Surat Yusuf teaches us. And you rule according to the evidence. In unjust societies, the unjust societies that Surat Hud talked about, it doesn't matter what the objective evidence is, you rule according to the interests of the powerful. And this will relate to, to this relates to the entire point of Surah Yusuf, as we will see. So although the empirical circumstantial evidence supported his narrative, he is sent to prison anyway. And apparently he stays in prison a very long time. He wasn't in prison for a week or two weeks or a month. He was imprisoned for years. The, the traditions disagree as to how many years. Some say as much as 20 years. Some say, no, it was more like a decade. Some say it was eight years, but it was a lot of years to the point that he's practically forgotten in prison. So it's a difficult, test. This is someone who, and again, he was abandoned, sold into slavery, is raised without the father, and his mother has died. He's raised without the father he loves, and the mother who, the, um, Jacob or Yaqub married, who was kind to him and his brother Benjamin. So she's a, she was a good uh, um, stepmom. And is now chosen to be a prophet, but shortly after he's chosen to be a prophet, he ends up in prison. How many of you, how many of us would stay the course? I mean, the vast majority would say, what the heck? God can't love me. God can't care about me. Look how much I've suffered in my life. And then now I'm a prophet, but then I'm thrown into prison for a crime I didn't commit in a thoroughly unjust society. But at the same time, the scandal follows Zulaikha. There's a lot of rumors among the elite, and the elite is all talking about 
how Zuleicha has the hearts for her adopted son. And although the Quran doesn't tell us this clearly, but the reports say that Zuleicha continued to try to get him to sleep with her after he was imprisoned. That she would basically say, you know, if you do this, I'll talk to Al Aziz. If you do that, I'll, you know, in, in prison, the, uh, these prisons were not, you know, they were dungeons, they were horrible. And, uh, you know, I'll send you fruit, I'll send you this, and he would continue to say no. And the rumors started going around that she continues to pursue this, this man. So the famous story is that then she invites the, 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 these women. There again, how many women they were, there, there are very di a lot of divergent reports. Some say 40, some say as little as eight. Anyway, and this, the expression for Qatana idea. Or, or, or say when, when he walks in, right? So he walks into the room, and the expression, A lot of, especially modern Muslims, think that what this means is that they severed their hands. And some of them actually tried to use this to say that. You, there is no punishment for theft or you, it, the Quran doesn't say that you cut the hands of a thief because of this verse. They're making a strange connection that doesn't jive. But anyway, it basically means that as the, when you came in, grammatically, if one of them accidentally, instead of cutting into the fruit, cuts into her skin, then applies. So it doesn't mean that, you know, they, they actually made deep cuts or serious injuries. It means they nicked themselves, basically, or one of them did, or more of one of them. But that the expression that they saw him as someone who was extremely attractive. Now, attractive because he was good looking or attractive because of his aura or whatever. Now, there is a further thing is that then after this incident reportedly he is not just harassed by Zulaikha now, he's harassed by some of these women who are accustomed to men from a lower caste and a lower class, leave alone men in prison, of doing something, by the way, that in repressed, closed societies still goes on is that wife of very rich 
powerful men will often not develop affairs with their servants or with their, they will command their servants or their drivers or whoever the help is to service them sexually. And this was the practice back then. It's like, who the hell do you think you are? You're just a, you're just an orphan who was found in the desert. And we, women of the elite and high honor, come and tell you, come serve us, us sexually, and you say, no, I'd rather stay in prison. That's an outrage. There's a further thing about this. The Quran, in addressing the issue this way, confronted many of people who were uncomfortable with this, with the reality that women have a sexual desire. Because in patriarchal societies, there was a very convenient fiction that men love to adhere to, is that only men have sexual desire, well, while sexual desire for women is unnatural and undesirable. That's where the practice of FGM comes from, is that you try to kill that desire. That narrative about the naturalness of sexual desire in women, when people ask why did Muslims write, why did Muslim jurists like Ibn Qayyim al or like Suyuti or write effectively sexual manuals about how husband and wife can enjoy each, each other sexually, it is because, again, as I keep saying time and time again, is because they took the Quran seriously. If the Quran says women have a sexual desire and their sexual desire could be so strong as to pursue a man that they find attractive and to obsess over the man, then forget the traditions um, and forget the customs. And that's what is started to emerge. I read, um, it's a tafsir that was written by an Indian scholar. Uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but he, the Indian scholar was saying that, um, yeah, you know, the, um, it's uh, the, the Arabs and Persians, they, and he, he said Arabs and Persian and Turks, uh, they had a problem with imagining that women have sexual desire. That's why they were always obsessed with young boys. And in their poetry and their, in their literature, they, they always, they never fantasize about women, they fantasize about young boys. But while we Indians, we fantasize about women because we've readily accepted that women have sexual desire. Anyway, it stuck with me. It's a, it's a well-known tafsir, I won't name it, but... 
So, you know, ethnic biases, this is an, it's an old tafsir, but, you know, ethnic biases go, have a history. Okay, so where, yeah. Okay. Now, notice, قال ربي السجن أحب إلي مما يدعونني إليه وإلا تصرف عني كيدهن أصب إليهن وأكن من الجاهلين. This is thirty three. This is says, "Is so Lord prison is dearer to me than that which they call me." This is in reference to the elite women. So it became they, not just Zulaikha. And if you do not turn their scheming away from me, I shall incline toward them and be among the ignorant. Now, again, some of the hardline uh, commentators said, this can't be. How could he be saying to God, you know, if you don't help me, I'm going to have to give in. Well, according to a lot of the traditions, what they put him through is hell. I mean, it's not just that they were saying, come and we'll give you money, or come and we'll release you from prison. They were saying, they were doing things like, uh, we will not feed you, we will not allow you to drink water unless you, and so he was being tortured. And his, this complaint to God, that God help me, because this is becoming unbearable, I think it's one of the most true and heartfelt prayers. And Allah responds to this thing. Allah turned their scheming away from him. Now, we don't, there's nothing authentically reported in the tradition as to how Allah turned their scheming away from him. Some said that inexplicably they just stopped. Others said that the rumors started spreading to husbands that they were consistently trying to get Yusuf to do what they wanted and then their husbands started getting involved or said, is it true that you're trying to sleep with it? You know, this is really becoming very embarrassing because everyone is talking about how you have the hearts for this man and that's what made it stop. Anyway, that a prophet suffering for a long time, turning to Allah, and Allah answers. Okay. Now, when he enters the prison, there are two other people who were jailed because they were accused of trying to poison the ruler at the time. And these are the two people who have the dreams, right? This is now around 36 and 37 and 38. Wait, no, sorry. Yeah, uh, 36. So, one of them says that I see myself making wine 
The other says, I see myself carrying a loaf of bread and birds are eating from this loaf of bread. And they notice that Yusuf is a pious man. And they, and this is upon one of the gifts that Allah gave Yusuf is the ability to interpret dreams that foretell the future, which is, although some have tried to make it into a science, I don't believe it is, uh, you know, like Ibn Sirin, for instance. But it is a, a, it's a gift that Allah gives some people if, in fact, what they are dreaming is foretelling the future. So he tells him quite honestly that one of you will be executed. Well, crucified means the, the, this is because this is the method of execution at the time. And the other will be released from prison and will in fact serve the ruler and reach a high position. And can, can you imagine the, the fellow who received the news that he's going to be executed? He must have not been very happy about it, but anyway. Um, but he, and he tells the, the fellow who's not going to be executed, the person who's going to be released from prison and serve the ruler and attain a high position, speak to your master about me because I am in prison unjustly. Okay. Now, part of the Islamic tradition that says that it was a weakness for Yusuf to ask the man who was going to be saved to speak to the ruler. And that say that this is why Allah allowed shaitan to make this man forget and for Yusuf to remain in prison another seven years. I've looked at these traditions for a long time and I don't, I don't trust their authenticity. The, the traditions that try to say he should have just simply not asked for anything and relied on God. Everything attributed to the Prophet turns out to have been an opinion of one of the Tabi'een, not an actual tradition. Uh, so I don't think it's reliable. At this point, we know what's going to happen. The fellow that was released, 
the Quran says that the shaitan made him forget his promise to Yusuf. Now, that could mean that he didn't care, or it could mean he just forgot, or he didn't see any reason, you know, as, as the Quran tells us in both in Surah Hud and Yunus, that when people are out of difficulty, they quickly forget all the things that they promised. Immoral failure, again. But in all cases, he didn't do anything to help Yusuf come out of prison, and seven years pass until the ruler has this disturbing dream that most of us are familiar with. The dream in which he sees uh, cattle eating cattle and and so on. We'll, we'll come to the dream in a second. So this is 43. So the king says, Behold, I saw seven fat cows being devoured by seven emaciated ones and seven green ears of wheat next to seven others that were weathered. And the king is concerned about this dream and asks people around him, what does this dream mean? And all of them say, means just delusions. They mean just bad dreams. Don't worry about it. Until it comes to the man who is in prison with Yusuf. And the man who is in prison with Yusuf, at that point, tells the king, you know what, I know someone Who's, who interpreted dreams for me and they were absolutely right on. Who is this person? Well, this is the son of and wazir and the, the minister. Your minister who has been in prison forever, forgotten. So they call upon they go to Yusuf and they say to Yusuf, the king wants you because he has a dream that he needs you to interpret. At this point, Yusuf says, no, I will not interpret the dream until you first until I first vindicate my innocence. Bring these women who had harassed me and have them testify as to the truth. And then we'll talk. So here there is a hadith reported from the Prophet in which the Prophet says, لَقَدْ عَجِبْتُ مِنْ يُوسُفْ وَكَرَمِهِ وَصَبْرِهِ 
حين سئل عن البقرات العجاف والسمان ولو كنت مكانه ما أخبرتهم حتى اشترط أن يخرجوني ولقد عجبت منه حين أتاه الرسول فقال ارجع إلى ربك ولو كنت مكانه ولبست في السجن ما لبست ولا أسرات للإجابة وبادرته الباب ولما ابتغيت العذر إن كان لحليما ذا أنا The Prophet is basically reported to say that I, I admire Yusuf's strength that when he's asked about the dream he doesn't rush to leave prison he first wants to prove his innocence and he does not want to leave prison until his innocence is proven first while most people would have been more than happy to run out of prison the other thing that he says is that he was more than willing to tell them what the meaning of the dream was without conditions in other words what he cared about is that the truth would come out and then he would leave prison because the truth came out not that he leaves prison as a favor because of the service rendered about the dream which testifies to a strength of character so he tells them that the dream means that there are going to be seven good years then seven bad years and then a year that will a year of plenty and this it turns out to be a cyclical problem in Egypt and a cyclical problem in a lot of agrarian societies. There are a number of years where there's plenty of rainfall, so the rivers and the dams run without and agriculture is plenty, but then the cycle is a number of years where there's a shortage in rainfall and the harvest of course fails and there's serious hunger. Pause here for a second. How do they get out of this problem? Is it by praying to Allah to send the rain for 14 straight years? Or is it by the performance of a miracle? No. The way they solve the problem is by good administration. Simply put, in the seven years of plenty, they're going to save. Save enough so that in the seven years of shortage, they're going to have enough. <coughs> and Yusuf says, put me in charge because Yusuf is known as a meticulously honest person. 
So the reports are, is that he tells the elite, none of your excesses anymore. No special favors, no special luxuries. There's a system and there's a structure and it's going to be followed. And he tells the king, give me full authority. Otherwise, I can't solve the problem. Too many modern Muslims pass over this point, while our ancestors noticed this, stopped at this point as a critical point. It is empirical circumstantial evidence that could vindicate Yusuf. It is corruption that threw Yusuf in jail for all these years. It is good administration, just administration, that saved the people of Egypt and perhaps the region of a famine and especially that this precise famine repeated itself later on in Egyptian history during the Islamic era after many of these Quranic commentators were writing their commentaries. There was a famine in Egypt because there were seven years of drought, subhanAllah, precisely where things got so bad that it, Egypt became known for people eating people, for cannibalism. In fact, at that time, one of the famous things that became, unfortunately, Egypt became famous for is that when people are walking in the street, they would suddenly find a hook that hooks out of them and they're pulled up by people on, on the roofs of buildings who pull them up to kill them and eat them because of the famine. And why did things get so bad in Egypt? Because Egypt at the time was not under a just government. Corruption was widespread and nothing was saved and the distribution of food was exploitative. So subhanAllah, again, those who use their intellect in reading the Quran, which the Quran begins Surah Yusuf with, pointed to the obvious and said, justice, equity, Goodness is something that can be achieved when you use the intellect to pursue justice and goodness and equity. Okay. But of course, before he comes out of prison, because he insists when the king brings the women, the noble 
the, the women from the noble class, at this point, they say, okay, yeah, you know, the truth is, is that Yusuf never pursued us. We, all, we pursued him. And at this point, Zulaikha, the wife of Al-Aziz, finds that she, she can't escape now because all the noble women testified, basically, you know, the jig was up. They said, yeah, we, we know that she, she desired them. She didn't just pursue him back that night where the incident happened, but she continued to try to pressure him in prison for a long time afterwards, and he never gave in. And look at what then becomes, especially among in Sufi literature, one of the classics. So this is Yusuf speaking. So what is what is Yusuf saying? This is fifty-two. What is Yusuf? What is his main concern? Concern about before coming out of prison is that he wants to make it clear that he didn't betray the trust of those who raised him. And that Allah doesn't support the treasures. Can you imagine, this is not about just marital betrayal or sex. This is about the principle of treachery. Can you imagine if Muslims today learn from the Quran and truly understood that this is a man that was willing to stay in prison if it meant that all he cared about is that it be clear that he is not a treacherous human being. If Muslims understood treachery as, actually you do find pointed out in some comment, commentators, commentaries, treachery is not just in, in something like, treachery is in, in business. Treasury is in the relationship between a student and a, and a teacher. Treasury is if you plagiarize something from someone. Treasury is in everything we do in life. But treasury and ethics and treasury in Islam cannot mix. I know some professors of Islamic studies that will steal from their graduate students. That steal from their graduate students, plagiarize from the graduate students, and go around as if and, and go around speaking for Islam. I have direct knowledge of this. Covered by it. You are treacherous. 
It occurs in everything. If it's a betrayal, it's a betrayal. Now, Zuleikha's response is what excited the imagination of so many Sufis. Because it is said that her repentance became one of the great stories of repentance. 53, when she says, وَمَا أُبَرِّئُ نَفْسِي إِنَّ النَّفْسَ لَأَمَّارَةٌ بِالسُّوءِ إِلَّا مَا رَحْمَ رَبِّي إِنَّ رَبِّي غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ So she says, I am not trying to absolve myself for verily every person's inner self does incite them to evil. And saved are only they upon whom my sustainer bestows his grace. Behold, my sustainer is much forgiving, a dispenser of grace. Some said that it is Yusuf who's saying this, and some said that it is Zulaikha who's saying this. And most Sufis said, no, it is Zulaikha who's saying this, and I agree with it. Because Zulaikha's repentance is supposed to have been one of the mythical stories of repentance. And let's be clear. The story of Zuleikha is not just, a, it's not a pious woman who had the hearts for Joseph and otherwise she was a model wife. She slept with whatever man she desired and she did this for many years. But this comes the point where Zuleikha decides that it is that she's been exposed and whatever inner turmoil she goes through and this has been dramatized in so many poems and so many Sufi narratives and what you know what Zulaikha felt what what transformations Zulaikha went through and so on and so forth but she decides to repent now her repentance becomes somewhat of a of, of a myth because there are so many narratives that say that in fact at this point Yusuf tells her you know what I've always loved you but and this is after her husband dies her husband dies and Yusuf tells her I've always loved you it's just that I couldn't betray the the Al-Aziz, and they marry. They get married at this point. The reason I say it becomes an object of myth is that you get in the Sufi literature all this, all this um, stories about that when they meet in their uh, wedding night, Yusuf finds that she has become a virgin again. Allah miraculously turned her into a version because she's obviously much older than he is. I, I don't think so. I mean, Allah Alam, I don't believe that. Um, and I don't know if they got married, but 
it, but it, so many Sufi narratives would be completely heartbroken if you told them that they in fact did not get married because it's supposed to be the great love story of repentance and you know finding each other after all these years and some even especially those who you know have turned this whole story of Yusuf as if that's the point it's just to tell you that the lovers found each other at the end but obviously I don't think that's the point because that's not even clear uh, sorry to disappoint the romantics out there but okay so in comes the brothers in comes into the scene the brothers of Yusuf and before we break for us I'll, I'll say this and then we'll break for us now the years of uh, Yusuf has done a good job in ending corruption and filling the coffers of the state with enough savings to cover the years of the famine to come and the king realizing that if he relies on the nobility the noble class they're in trouble he, he gives Yusuf full powers and so on Egypt is the, the, the famine hits not just Egypt but the entire region and people in what is today Sina and Palestine and parts of Syria know that real grain real food only exists in Egypt and they travel to Egypt to barter anything they can barter for food and among those hit hard by the famine is Jacob and his family the brother Yusuf's brother and so they go around seeing finding anything they could barter and they want to head to Egypt to get food but there's a little footnote and that is much of what people are bringing to barter is worthless so Joseph says often will give people grain even if what they have to barter is not worth anything but he limits the amount of grain people can take so to one person one camel one family member equal one camel load so if you've got four family members you get four camel loads and this um, uh, this um, 
What is the word I'm looking for? You know, when you limit the distribution to people. Oh, rationing. Yeah, this rationing system. Sorry, right? Rationing. This rationing system is critical, but there's also in the sources is that he limits the regions that Egypt is willing to service. And notice the classic Quranic pronouncement in 56. Now, so at this point in 56, that Allah points our attention that this is Yusuf that has gone from a child thrown into a hole to a parentless child raised in a palace to a prisoner in prison for a long time persecuted to a man of a considerable importance and position importance and position and then a large reminder that with all of this don't forget this is 57 that with all of this don't forget that the hereafter is better at no point the Quran will tell you about a worldly gain without reminding you time and time again that whatever the worldly gain is, the hereafter is better. Okay, so then the, the brothers arrive in Egypt and they have material to barter. And according to the rationing system, they receive a camel load of grain each. But they tell Yusuf that we have a brother who's not present. And where is this brother? Well, he stayed behind. And he says, okay, well, I'll give you a camel load for this brother. But on the condition that you must actually produce the brother Next time you come, so you must actually show that you didn't lie to me and that you have this brother, next time you come. And if you don't, then I will never get, deal with you any, again. So I'm going to trust you that you do have a brother that didn't show up with you. But if you don't produce this brother, then that's the end of the relationship. Now, it's interesting because at this point, they know that 
it's going to be a problem. They could have just skipped on the extra camel load of grain and not told, not said, well, give us camel load because we have a brother who's not present. But they are constantly struggling with themselves. And it was the fact because they know that when they, they tell their father, well, we want the brother to come with us to Egypt, you know, the whole distrust about what they did with Joseph, who after all came from the same mother, is going to come up again. Um, and, but they can't resist. And ultimately, Joseph looks at what they brought to barter, and he says, put it back into their camels. Like, in other words, return to them what they brought to barter. Um, some said because he recognized it's their brothers. These are his brothers. Some say because he recognized that it was worthless and that that's what he did with so many others. I tend to think it's the second interpretation. And when they finally go back home, now they have to confront the issue of telling their father, well, if we want any more grain from Egypt, our younger brother, Binyamin, is going to have to come with us. And they're very happy when they find that the stuff that they brought to barter was returned to them. And they told their father, look, you know, this, this, this man or this, this government is wonderful. They didn't even take the stuff we brought to barter. They gave us a camel load, so you don't have anything to worry about. And he is, of course, extremely worried about what they did about with Yusuf. The memory is still painful and alive. And there are reports that he never stopped crying about the loss of Yusuf and so on and so forth. So the, he says, okay, well, you've got to promise me a solemn promise that if you take Benjamin, he will come back with you. Otherwise, don't come back. So in other words, if you lose him, I don't want to see any of you anymore. And he gives them an interesting point of advice. He says, don't enter from one gate because, and most commentaries say that the reason he tells them that is he's worried about envy. That if they're all coming together in, in one group, that they may that they may be envied because of their number as as siblings and he says them enter enter from different gates others said that well no it's not the point is not envy the point is that again by what was the practices and customs of near east at the time is that kingdoms worried about groups of people. The greater the number, the greater the worry. 
And if they appear, they were just there getting grain. And they went back to Palestine and they're soon coming back to Egypt again for more grain. The stuff they, they had brought to barter the first time is still with them. So they're hoping, well, okay, now we still have the stuff to barter. So hopefully we'll get more grain. But governments become suspicious if they see big numbers returning. They, they're worried about a challenge to their power. So in other words, he, he tells them, don't attract attention to yourself. Don't worry the authorities by coming through different gates. But the Quranic commentary here is very interesting. So this is 68. This is Muhammad Asad who says, but although they entered in the way their father had bidden them, this proved of no avail whatever to them against the plan of God. His request had served only to satisfy Jacob's heartfelt desire to protect them. For behold, thanks to what he had imparted unto him, he was indeed endowed with the knowledge that God will, will must always prevail, but most people know it not. Now it's interesting, Muhammad Asad understands this to mean that God's will was going to take place anyway and that entering from some from these different gates was somehow supposed to achieve some goal maybe envy I'm not sure what he has in mind but I understand it differently Allah saying that yes they entered from different gates listening to their father's advice and hajatan fi nafsi yaqub that yaqub and that yaqub is wise and allah has taught him well and that he hajatan fi nafsi yaqub a concern he has a worry he has and i would say it's even a valid concern don't attract attention, don't get, you're there, after all, for help from people who don't need to help you. No way are obligated to help you. Don't raise worries by showing numbers or showing some form of strength. But the comment, which is, is critical is that ultimately Allah reminds us that in all cases regardless of the precaution you take 
it is Allah's will that will be done. And we'll see why this is really important. So, they finally arrive with Benjamin, with Benjamin, and at this point, Yusuf takes Benjamin to the side. He, he hosts them, and th there are reports that he met with them two by two by two, and then met Benjamin alone. Anyway, and he tells Benjamin that I am Yusuf, and Benjamin realizes that this is his lost brother. And here, the story, the, the, there is an interesting, another ethical issue. Now, in the Bible, the story goes, he doesn't tell Benjamin that he's his brother, and he plants the cup in Benjamin's material, and then says, then accuses Benjamin of having stolen the cup. In the Quran, the language gives rise to a different debate. Clearly, the Quran says, contrary to the Bible, that he tells Benjamin that he's his brother. But there is a debate among the commentaries whether now Yusuf and Benjamin both agree to do this um, uh, trick, to th this um, plan to pretend that the cup was stolen from the king, or whether in fact there was no such agreement. And let me explain this in, in the way, in the following Benjamin is a minor. And as a minor, he is under the charge of the brothers. Under Egyptian law, if someone steals, the punishment is beating and a fine that, depending on the time, either twice or 10 times the price of the item stolen. Under Jewish law, the punishment is for if someone steals is enslavement there is a disagreement in jewish law as to whether the enslavement is for a period of time or whether it's permanent enslavement yusuf clearly wants benjamin benjamin to stay with him because this is the way that he's going to bring the entire, he's going to make contact with his father. Egyptian law wouldn't help, because if Benjamin is accused of theft, he would be flogged and he would pay a hefty fine, but otherwise he's still in the custody of his older brothers. But under the law at the time, Visitors to Egypt have a right or to have their own religious laws applied to them. This is the, the law of the Hexus, what the Hexus implemented in Egypt. So Persians have Persian law applied to them. 
North Africans of North Africa and so on and so forth. So, but, so, so much is clear. What's not clear is this. Is it the agreement between Yusuf and Benjamin that, okay, so let's invent the story about stealing the king's cup so that I can stay with you? Or rather, the second school of thought is that Yusuf gave Benjamin the cup as a gift. And after the caravan departed, the people who worked in the palace noticed the cup missing. So they yelled out, the, the king's cup is missing, which was supposedly a special cup made of gold and jewels and stuff like that. And remember, the king has given Yusuf put him in charge of everything. He had the authority to give the king's cup away. But not knowing that this was given as a gift, they yelled out it's missing and stopped the caravan and insisted on searching the caravan. So do you see? The, the school number one says no, it was a trick, a planned trick between Yusuf and his brother. School number two says it was set of circumstances that Allah planned so that Yusuf would end up, end up having his brother stay with him. So he gave him the cup, the caravan was stopped, the caravan was searched, they found the cup. At that point, when they found the cup, Yusuf says, I gave him the cup. The attendants say, well, we have to check with the king whether you had the authority to give him the cup. But Benjamin can't leave until we've checked. If it's the second, what caught my attention about the second is that is a meticulous system of justice. The attendants are not willing to take Yusuf's word for it and insist on detaining the suspect, not in jail, in Yusuf's custody, until they actually verify that, the, that Yusuf had the right to give the king's cup as a gift. The reason this disagreement arises is in the Bible, it's a clear trickery by Yusuf, but in the Quran, they debate whether it was unethical for Yusuf and Benjamin to trick the brothers this way or not. That's why the debate arose. And a group said, well, it's, uh, it's not unethical because the suspect and the owner both are in the know and none of the brothers were hurt. Second group, like Razi, didn't like it. Didn't like the idea that prophet of God would lie, even if it's for a good cause. 
and said, no, I, I, I don't accept these reports. I accept the reports that it was a gift because it's not possible that a prophet of God would lie, even for a good cause. So, the cop is missing, they stop the caravan, and they ask the brothers, so what if we do find the cup? And the brothers say, well, the law is, Jewish law applies. And everyone knows that Jewish law applies because they're Jews. And of course, Yusuf himself is a Jew, but he has for a long time now lived in Egypt as an Egyptian and not a Jew. And although there are reports that the king knew Hebrew, um, there is an interesting report that he did talk to Yusuf in Hebrew at one point. But anyway, um, this is the, the attendance and the, 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 court, the court in general ha doesn't even remember that Yusuf is a Jew. He, he's been in Egypt for a very long time. Anyway, so they find the cup under either scenarios now Benjamin is going to stay with Yusuf and the brothers are going to have to go back and confront Jacob. What lends credence, by the way, to the second version, and this was, I don't remember who pointed this out, but it was one of the sources. It might have even been a manuscript that I've read. I couldn't remember. Is that when they go back home, they go back with the grain that they've been allotted. If it was the first and it was the it was settled that this is in fact a criminal, it's not likely that they would have been allowed to go back with the grain. Anyway, now of course, notice the response of the brothers that is very obnoxious when the cup is found with Benjamin's material on Benjamin's camel. قالوا إن يسرق فقد سرق أخ له من قبل فأسرها يوسف في نفسه ولم يبدها لهم قال أنتم شر مكانا والله أعلم بما تصفون. This is 77. Their response is saying, well, oh, if he's, if he's stolen, well, he has a brother before him who stole something as, as well. And what they mean by this is Yusuf himself. And the reason they said this is that there is a story about Yusuf that when he was, during the time before he was obviously abandoned, that he had once stolen an idol from somewhere and smashed it. That's one story. Another story we don't need to get into, but basically that they, they wanted to malign Yusuf, although as far as they're concerned, Yusuf is dead, or sorry, enslaved. So at this point, of course, they tried to reason with Yusuf and said to, with him, or bargain with Yusuf, you know, the problem is, is that he has a father that's going to be, it's going to be a huge problem that um, 
that we go back without this kid specifically. Take one of us in his stead. In other words, enslave one of us in his stead. And who responds at this point with Yusuf himself that says, this is 79. Is it Yusuf himself who said this or someone, an authority in the court? What they're saying is that may God forbid that we take anyone but the guilty person because if we do, then we would become among the unjust. Pause there again. The idea of collective punishment was established with persistent in Near Eastern legal systems for centuries, even until Islam came. Till this very day, if you go to countries like Syria, if you, they go to arrest someone and they don't find them, they'll arrest his brother, they'll arrest his mother, they'll arrest his sister. In Egypt, same thing, systems of political oppression. They go to arrest you, they, they don't find you, they'll arrest your brother, they'll arrest your mother, they'll arrest your father, they'll arrest your cousins. Arrest... Again, a, a component of an unjust system is that they don't care where guilt is. They will punish the innocent in order to get at the guilty. But this is contrary to the ethics of justice. And so, Under Yusuf's administration, it's a no-go. And they are forced to leave Egypt and go back to confront Yaqub. Except for the older brother who, fearing confronting his father, said, I, I, I will not leave Egypt. I, will, I can't confront my father and I will stay where I am until my father tells me I can go back home. Because remember, his father said, if you don't come back with Binyamin, don't, don't bother coming back. So they go back and they tell their father, your son stole. Now it's one, there's an interesting point here again, is that according to the second school, it was not established yet that the son has, was, was convicted of stealing. The son was detained till further investigation. And the rush to judgment is again evidence of their lack of ethical character. But they say, your, your son is a thief and ask people who are with us, the people who traveled with us, that he's in Egypt because he's accused of stealing something. And his intuition 
is that Joseph is still alive and that this set of events will end up bringing him uniting with both his sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Nevertheless, his sorrow over the loss of Yusuf, which he hasn't seen for decades. by the way, means is, doesn't mean that he became blind as it's commonly thought and it's commonly translated. It means that he's eyes fogged up, his eyes, his eyesight weakened. It's like saying he cried so much that his, he started suffering from dry, dry eye sy syndrome. And, this, and his expression, this is one of the most heartfelt Painful. This is 87. And he says, My sons, go forth and try to obtain some tidings of Joseph and his brothers. In other words, try to find them, try to restore them, bring them back. And do, and do not lose hope of God's life-giving mercy. Verily none but people who deny the truth can ever lose hope of God's living, life-giving mercy. The, the, this expression, I like the way Muhammad Asa translates it as life-giving mercy. Rawh is the same word that Rahma is derived for, from. Which, by the way, is the same word that Rahim, the womb, is derived from. The source of. But Rawh literally means spirit. But he's not saying, do not despair of God's spirit. We're saying, do not despair. It's, it's like saying, do not despair of the, the, um, the endless breath of God. It's like saying that God's life-giving spirit is everywhere and it is the source of constant mercy. And you can never despair of that endless source of life-giving mercy. This, against all odds that you, that you, you, you consistently believe that 
if Allah wills, Allah will solve it. Meanwhile, things got very dire for the brothers. The famine is only getting worse. The grain that he brought back from, from Egypt has run out. And although they know that Benjamin is in Egypt, and although they know that if in fact, I mean, and it's again, one of the things that you pause at is that instead of listening to their father and worrying about going back to Egypt to try to get Benjamin back, at what point do they think about going back to Egypt? They try to go back to Egypt when economically things got very dire for them. And so here at 88, so they they go back and say, فَلَمَّا دَخْلُوا عَلَيْهِ قَالُوا يَا أَيُّهَا الْعَزِيزِ مَسَّنَا وَأَهْلَنَا الضُّرُّ وَجِئْنَا بِبُضَاعَةٍ مُسْجَاءَ فَوْفِي لَنَا الْكَالِ وَتَصَدَّقَ عَلَيْنَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَجْزِ الْمُتَصَدِّقِينَ So they go back and they say, we, our family is really suffering. And we've brought with us a scanty merchandise. Scanty meaning not worth bartering. We, we know that what we brought. What are they focused on? Well, don't give us according to the value of the merchandise that we brought to barter. But tasaddaq Give us extra. Be kind and generous. Now, if you are in Yusuf's shoes, you must be fair. I mean, they, they falsely maligned him. He has Benjamin with him, and instead of coming back about Benjamin, they're coming back, and they're coming back wanting a sadaqah. They're saying, we don't have anything worthwhile to trade. And at this point, he reveals that he is Yusuf. And he tells him, I am Yusuf, and this is my brother. And his comment on this is in 90. For those who are conscious of God, and patient in adversity, God does not waste their good deeds. So his commentary to, other, to them is it is patience and perseverance and God's kindness that put me in my position. At this point, They have one of the most debated change of hearts. They say, oh my God, yeah, you're our brother, Yusuf, 
oh my God, God has been so kind to you. Look at the position you've reached. And they seem repentant. Right? He says, you were jahilun, you were ignorant or immoral. So they, they, they say, قَالُوا تَاللَّهِ لَقَدْ آثَرَكَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْنَا وَإِنَّا كُنَّا لَخَاطِئِينَ Oh, God has treated you much better than God has treated us. And we were wrongdoers. Very interesting moral question. If you were in Yusuf's position, would you accept their admission of guilt at this point? A second ago, they came wanting something from you. Now they're admitting that they're wrong, but you know they have everything to gain from you, especially your position of prestige. His response is قَالَ لَا تَثْرِيبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْيَوْمِ يَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَهُوَ أَرْحَمُ الرَّاحِمِينَ Basically, I forgive you and may Allah forgive you for God is the most forgiving. Okay? Does this remind you of anything? When the Prophet ﷺ conquered Mecca, his answer was a general amnesty and a general forgiveness. One of the most remarkable things about Surah Yusuf, it is, it, it is anticipating what will happen 10 years later where the Prophet will stand a similar position and say, La You're all forgiven. Although, one can make many arguments that this is a self-interested guilt and self-interested repentance. I'll, I'll come to the to, to why. So or, or why accept it? So then he gives them evidence of his life, a piece of clothing, and as soon as the caravan arrives back home, Jacob has the sense that his son is alive and well, and. Not just Jacob, but Jacob, his wives, and his children all travel to settle in Egypt. And at this point, before they leave to Egypt, because I forgot, at 97, قَالُوا يَا أَبَانَا اسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا ذُنُوبَنَا إِنَّا كُنَّا خَاطِئِينَ 
قال سوف استغفر لكم ربي إنه هو الغفور الرحيم so before they leave they go back when they go back to the father now they're going to have to tell the father that Joseph Yusuf, Yusuf is alive and well and not only alive but he's in the position of and he has Benjamin with him and they say to their father ask Allah to forgive us and the father says I will ask Allah to forgive you for Allah is most forgiving and when they reach Egypt so he seats his father and his stepmom because his actual mom is dead on the throne وَخَرُّوا لَهُ سُجَّدًا وَقَالَ يَا أَبَتِ هَذَا تَأْوِيلُ رُؤْيَاهِ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَقَدْ جَعَلَهَا رَبِّي حَقَّا وَقَدْ أَحْسَنَ بِي إِذْ أَخْرَجَنِي مِنَ السِّجْنِ وَجَاءَ بِكُمْ مِنَ الْبَدْوِ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنْ نَذْغَ الشَّيْطَانُ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَ إِخْوَتِي إِنَّ رَبِّي لَطِيفٌ لِمَا يَشَاءُ إِنَّهُ الْعَلِيمُ الْحَكِيمُ So, two schools of thought about the sujood. First schools of thought, the majority says that the brothers, they did some form of prostration before Yusuf. And that this was the way, the custom of the people back then. And that humans prostrating before other humans was forbidden or outlawed by Islam. The other school of thought, a minority but still well represented, says that when it says وَسَجَدُوا لَهُ it means that they prostrated to God, not to Yusuf. I, frankly, the, the historical perspective, because prostration was a well-known system, I mean, before Islam, it was very common for human beings to prostrate before other human beings. Um, and only it's the, the advent of Islam in the Near East that made it problematic. Before Islam, it was a practice in Persia, it was a practice in Yemen, it was a practice in Egypt, it was... So... Anyway. His comment about this is, is to recall how Allah brought him out of prison, brought the family out of the desert, unified, reunited the family, and after how now he can reconcile with his siblings after shaitan has created animosity and jealousy between them. In other words, after shaitan has ruined the relationship. Okay.
Now, let's pause here for a second. Because we're, we're going to approach the closing, the remarkable, amazing closing of Surah Yusuf. On the one hand, as Ibn Ajiba puts it rather beautifully, so he said, he says, جرت عادة الحق في خلقه أنه أنه لا يأتي الإمكان الإمكان إلا بعد الامتحان ولا يأتي السلوان إلا بعد الأجال ولا يأتي العز إلا بعد الذل ولا يأتي الوجد إلا بعد الفقد فبقدر ما يضيق على البشرية التسع ميادين الروحانية وبقدر ما تسجن النفس وتحبس فيها عن هواها تتسع الروح so what he's saying is commenting about the nature of suffering. And he's saying that Allah's sunnah in creation is that no true good can come without first suffering. That happiness cannot come unless you first taste sadness. You know what sadness means. And even real honor doesn't come unless you experience the opposite of it. And finding yourself cannot be unless you first lose yourself. And as much as your body suffers, your soul is freed. In the same way, as much as Allah restrains your whim, Allah liberates your soul. But this goes <coughs> right to the heart of the theme in Surah Yusuf. Suffering that we encountered in Yunus and Hud is not just the punishment of those who defy and is not just the suffering of those who fail to achieve justice, but suffering in itself is an educator. Wealth without experiencing the meaning of need and poverty turns to its opposite. Knowledge, without being aware of the meaning of ignorance, turns to its opposite. Everything you have that is not anchored 
in a realization of the meaning of its absence is a corruption of the thing. Yusuf starts out a happy child. In fact, a fevered child. But from that goes through intense trials or intense, so at first he's abandoned, he's even beaten by his brothers and then abandoned, becomes a slave. The implication of Yusuf then having to rely on his intuitive and rational faculties to perfect his ethics And after a long process of proving his worth, is able to achieve precisely the objective that Hood and Yunus talked about, and that's justice. The type of society that the followers of Muhammad are called upon to achieve. So Yusuf comes and it's telling these Muslims, you can go from, from your period of persecution, you are like those abandoned in the well, absolutely persecuted, powerless, but if you trust in Allah, it is Allah that can, through means that you can never predict and never foresee, then that can take you from being at the very bottom to the very top. Then you stand the real challenge when you get to that position, when you get to that position, you're going to have a list of grievances and hurt and pain. Is your priority going to be to avenge that pain or to reach for the higher good and that's forgiveness. Exactly what the Prophet and the rest of Muslims, the position they stood in 10 years later. So between Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf, these three surahs philosophized the pain and agony that Muslims were going through, the persecution that they were going through, but did so in, in my, in my view, only God can write this way. 
Because it completely predicted to them what in fact transpired. You are going to be like Yusuf. And you are going to stand that at that moral challenge. And when you do, it is exactly your your ability to comprehend the lesson delivered delivered in Surat Hud and Surat Yusuf about ethics and justice that's going to define your position vis-a-vis -vis Allah. So, look. So here, at 100, verse 100, the verse is half speaking to the Prophet Yusuf and half speaking to the Prophet Muhammad. Rabbi qad ataytani min al-mulki wa'allamtani min ta'wil al-ahadith. So this seems to be Prophet Yusuf. This is 101. فاطر السماوات والأرض أنت ولي في الدنيا والآخرة توفني مسلما والحقني بالصالحين She's a universal prayer أنت ولي في الدنيا والآخرة توفني مسلما والحقني بالصالحين After all of this the ultimate goal is to die a Muslim and to join the Salihin, the righteous. ذَلِكَ مِنْ أَنْبَاءِ الْغَيْبِ نُوحِيهِ أَلَيْكَ وَمَا كُنْتَ لَدَيْهِمْ إِذْ أَجْمَعُوا أَمْرَهُمْ وَهُمْ يَمْكُرُونَ You, we are telling you the story, this is now to the Prophet, and you weren't there. And you weren't there, and the Quran says it, it is precisely because the things that it says that are different from the Bible, shows that it, it, you had to be there, or you have to be a genius inventor who has like this, basically. So 103 comes in back again and tells the Prophet, but even after all of this, most people will not believe. That's the nature of things. وَمَا تَسْأَلْهُمْ عَلَيْهِ مِنْ أَجْرٍ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا ذِكْرٌ لِلْعَالَمِينَ وَكَأَيٍّ مِنْ آيَةٍ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ يَمُرُّونَ عَلَيْهَا وَهُمْ عَنْهَا مَعْرِدُونَ So you don't ask them for, for, for anything. This is a dhikr. This is a remembrance for, for all humanity. وَكَأَيٍّ مِنْ آيَةٍ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ يَمُرُّونَ عَلَيْهَا وَهُمْ عَنْهَا مَعْرِدُونَ this Quran is like all the ayahs that surround them in the heavens and the earth. They see it, they hear it, but they ignore it and keep going. وَمَا يُؤْمِنُ أَكْثَرُهُمْ بِاللَّهِ إِلَّا وَهُمْ مُشْرِكُونَ Now here, subhanAllah, it takes you to a step further. 
This is talking to the people after Isra. This is talking to the persecuted Muslims. But it jumps ahead and tells the Prophet something that he will not experience until Medina. Most people, when they believe, they will believe so-and-so. This doesn't apply to Mecca. Because the people in Mecca, these are the people who stuck with him after the Isra, and the people who stuck with him during the persecution. But it jumps forward, and the Prophet will remember this ayah. And will say, Allah and Ba'ani Rabbi, Allah told me that this will in fact will happen. Most people, even when they believe, they are still mushriks. Their shirk is their ego, material possessions, their family, whatever that they think is as worthy as God or even worthier than God. Then, is amazing, 108. Now, comes to this point. Say to them, who's to them to everyone? This is my path. My path. I call to Allah. Now you pause here because this is. I call to Allah. Ala basira can only mean one thing. The way that I call to Allah is with full, competent knowledge and intellectual ability. Ala basira, ana wa man It's like saying, our path is to call for our Lord, but it is not a path for the brain dead. Everything in Surah Yusuf, like Hud and Yunus, is telling you, refuse your intellect to understand the lessons. Because if the goal, as Allah wants you to do, is to work towards achieving a just society, then it's not going to achieve by the brain dead. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِمْ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْقُرَى أَفَلَمْ يَصِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَيَنْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ وَلَدَارُ الْآخِرَةِ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ اتَّقُوا أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ Haven't they 
Don't they understand? Haven't they studied the past history of past nations? Haven't they reflected upon those who came before them? so it comes 110 and 111. Look at the prediction, the precise prediction it gives the Prophet. It says, this is the way we do things. Prophets are tested. And the people who pursue the path of goodness are tested. Tested like the way you've read about those who were tested in Yunus and Hud and Yusuf. Until they reach the point where they nearly despair in Allah's victory. There's no hope. People are endlessly lost. There's no hope. And they believe, خلاص, this is it. There's, there's just no way. Then our victory comes. Yeah. If there could be a more direct prediction to the Prophet, it would not be possible. It's like telling the Prophet, well, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is before the Hijrah. You guys are going to be persecuted like hell, and you're going to feel like there is no way. But I, I'm telling you, if you prove yourself, the victory will come, and you will reach that point that Yusuf reached with his brothers. And this is precisely why, as 111 says, when we tell you these narratives, these qasas, these ahsan qasas, it is not to entertain you. It is not to tell you about romance. But tafsila kulli shay is to teach you the path. Tafsina kulli shay, it's even beyond that. It's like saying, let's see how it's translated. It is a divine writ confirming the truth of whatever there still remains of earlier, clearly spelling out everything. Muhammad Asad says, clearly spelling out everything and offering guidance and grace unto people who will believe. I would say spelling out everything in the realm of ethics. It doesn't mean that the Quran spells out everything in the realm of medicine. Or it doesn't spell, mean the Quran spells out everything in the realm of astronomy. 
The Quran spells out everything or law. The Quran doesn't spell out everything in the realm of law. The Quran spells out everything in the realm of ethics, morality. And it is a guidance for those who wish to be guided. This is why the romanticizing of Surat Yusuf takes place, you know, after the around the fourth century Hisra. So three centuries pass. But in the early centuries, people clearly understood Surat Yusuf, or Muslims understood Surat Yusuf as Allah saying, I've told you about nations, the people of Yunus who, you know, their, their, their prophet despaired, but they didn't. I have told you about people who deserve Allah's support because of their pursuit of justice. But I'm telling you that none of this is possible unless you have the type of conviction and belief that faith, history, is in Allah's hands, even if you do not see the path forward, even if you are dumped in that hole in the ground where you effectively, for however long, see yourself as abandoned, worthless, a slave. It is a lack of belief to say nothing is possible but that. That's why these so are transferred on the face of theirs. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wadam Rasul Tusuf. That was incredible. Um, and I think we all need to take a moment to process. Um, truly, I mean, there's just no words. Um, I think that understanding where Yunus and then Hud and then Yusuf all comes together there's just there's so much but it's just truly this really like so beautiful and overwhelming um but also um comes with such clarity and it's such a difficult challenge but it's you can see like it's a completely different islam than we understand today um and if if muslims you know can get even a little bit of it and truly internalize it it would just be earth shattering. I mean, it's like we now have covered, this is now the 59th surah, um, which in itself is, is unbelievable. But you've said time and time again, like each surah can in itself be transformative. And now we've had, you know, 59 two truly life transformative experiences. But this is really in the class by itself. So thank you so much um, for all the suffering. And I think even the message that, you know, like we've all seen how much you've suffered to deliver this, but it, in, in some ways it's, it comes, I mean, as much as it's been so painful to see you suffering, when even when you get a message like this, that you have to suffer to 
receive something beautiful, it actually, I think it gives us a little bit of consolation and, and like hope that for all of the suffering that Allah would reward you. And I know we've gained so much. So thank you so much. And um, let's take a moment to collect our questions. Please feel free to send them through the chat. Do you want to pray Maghrib first? Okay, so we'll take a break. We'll pray Maghrib and then we'll come back and do the Q&A, inshallah. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, we're back. Um, Sheikh wanted to start with a comment before we jump into the Q&A. In, in, in the, the ayah uh, 110, because uh, uh, Rami brought up this point, Hatta is a state as a rusul wa dhannu annahum qad kudribu wa jaahum nasruna فنجي من من نشاء ولا يرد بأسنا عن القوم المجرمين. There's two قراءات one كذبوا with with the شدة and كذبوا and they they have a slight difference in meaning that's actually really interesting. كذبوا would mean that they believed. That they have been persistently denied, but with a continuing hope that it would be otherwise. Kuzibu would mean that their mission has failed, so that our messengers, they, that. until they reach a point of despair and think that either that they have been consistently turned down, consistently rejected, was, although they continually hope that it would be otherwise, or, which is probably the more likely reading, Kudibu, uh, uh, that, they have, that their mission has failed. What then becomes of that is up to Allah. And if you notice, the whole journey that Surah Yunus and Hud, with the telling of the narratives about the prophets, is precisely that, with the exception of Yunus, who reaches a point where he says, okay, there's no hope, that's it, the, the mission has failed, and he takes off. And that's precisely the whole trial of the whale uh, swallowing him and then throwing him out, and then the, 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 the thing that we've talked about was, and then he returning to the people of Ninia to find that they have actually repented and fixed their ways and so on. But what so many commentators, um, they, they don't limit this to the path of the prophets, but to, to the path of reformers as well. Um, that all people who carry this message as some have put it that you know they are, they will there is no reason to believe that an average human being who carries this message on their shoulders will fare better than the prophets. Um, 
And as I said before, in the Islamic tradition, there is a very heavy emphasis uh, about whether your fame is with the people on this earth or in the heavens. Because there are a lot of people who are very famous on earth who have no value in the heavens. And many people who have little value on earth, but their value in the heavens is very weighty. Um, all of this is to say is that you live by the principle and the commitment and the ethical path. And, and I, as I always say that pain is a great educator. So much so that, uh, um, you know, you, you hear Grace talk a lot about the pains I go through and, you know, they're all medical conditions that are very painful. But I even reached the point in life that I, I'm embarrassed to ask God for relief. Um, I learned so much from the pain that I ask Allah for patience, for perseverance, for endurance, and for understanding. I might be wrong, but I, I actually rarely ask for shifa, for a cure. Actually, I never asked for a cure. I think all of us around you ask for cure. <laughs> um, you know, I I I want to thank you um, for for this surah because maybe this is a different way of saying what you just said, but I feel like what came to me was an idea of ultimate liberation, right? Because normally I think we all human beings fear suffering whether that suffering is pain or anxiety um, or, or just fear of anything. And this surah, I mean, it just turned everything on its head. Like if you alter your perception about fear and you say, you know, you can't truly appreciate Allah's gifts unless you have the opposite. Like what you said, you know, Yusuf started as a happy child and then he went through all of these things that taught him the opposite of what he ultimately achieved. Mm -hmm. So whether it's happiness, you know, hardship, perseverance, whatever, um, even pain, um, like the idea that you really can't fully appreciate God's gifts unless you've actually experienced the other, and then you, you, you add to that, God will never give you more than you can handle. So even the idea of like fear and pain, like for me, I'm always afraid of like, like I, I'm, a horrible uh, when it comes to pain, headache, you know, cut myself, anything like that. But if you trust that God is never going to give you more than you can handle in terms of that, um, I mean, it all comes back to how much you trust in Allah and how much you trust that whatever you're experiencing, God is giving it to you for a reason and that it's for the best, you know, if that's what you want, right? I mean, ultimately it comes back to 
do you want to believe in, in, in beauty and the God of ultimate goodness, the God of ultimate love and the God of ultimate everything? I mean, it's like all of these lessons that are like, when they come together in this beautiful mosaic and you start like pulling from different things you've learned, it's, it's just, it, it, it's like it just touches your, your, your spirit in such a way that it just creates this, this confidence and, you know, or, or peace, I guess. Um, and even like this, this, what we've covered changed my idea about parenting because you know you love your child that you want to shield your child from every bit of suffering and every bit of hardship you know um, and you feel guilty you know like or I do I mean speak for myself like even just giving my kids chores which I know is good for them but causes me pain but which ultimately is not really right for them because how can they learn the opposite when they haven't had some hardship and some suffering um, yeah. and so to hear it here is is really um, Again, a life, life transforming. So, I mean, thank you. And and I think that the, the comment that I wanted to share with with everyone here, although we've heard it now, but you know, just to remind people, like you know, um, when Sheikh is is teaching us this, you know, he's read every tafsir he could get his hands on, um, you know, and even manuscripts that aren't published that are not possible, and like um, this is he's the only one who's discovered a connection between um, Yunus and Hud and Yusuf. So, you know, when people want to understand, okay, well, what's different about what you're teaching? I mean, that's one extremely striking difference. And um, that that's something that people should, should know. This comes from, um, you know, and, and again, I mean, just as a separate note, it's like, I think these halakas have, and khutbahs um, have taught me what a true scholar is. Because, you know, when you compare and you look around to what other Muslim spaces are talking about, what other khutbahs are covering, um, and the depth of knowledge, um, you know, it's it's very, um, it's it's just it's such a huge huge chasm. Um, so alhamdulillah. Yeah, the, the as long as the Muslim scholarship on the Quran is in the abysmal state it is in, we 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 were always an ummah of the Quran. We we have always. Our worth has been always in direct proportion to the Quran. Um, when we when we get to the point that the Quran it just doesn't have any impact on us, um, the the yeah, there's the, the just um, but you know, may Allah can change things overnight. So that's what we work for. Alhamdulillah, just as a side note, um, we've noticed here among the group when we're talking about things or even getting into debates and discussions, like our entire vocabulary has changed. Like we, we like use as a reference point things we've learned in halakas. And um, so it's like, yeah, but the Quran says this, but yeah, but the Quran also said that. It's just fascinating to see how it has changed our psychology here and how we communicate with one another. So Alhamdulillah for that. Um, okay, so. We have a Yusuf in the audience. Yusuf, can you kick us off with uh, your first question? <laughs> oh, it's a fairly basic question. This is, thank you so much, Professor, just to echo what um, Grace was saying. Because you know, so everybody's so familiar with the story of Yusuf, but connecting it to Hud and Eunice and also picking out these aspects that you know we just always just skip over. Who raised Yusuf? 
you know, was Yakub fair in favouring his son? He never ever thought of this before. Um, and it's so, because it is a good story. I mean, it's just, a, it's a great story. It's so easy to get distracted by the story. Well, Yusuf Zubaykha and you know, the beauty of Yusuf, and you just miss the point. Yeah, exactly. Um, the question was really about just the structure of Yusuf and the story of Yusuf in the Quran itself, because, I mean, it is unique because Yusuf isn't really mentioned anywhere else in the Quran. I think there's only two very brief references. Yeah. But the story is here in chapter 12, beginning, middle to end, and nowhere else, which I don't think happens with any other prophetic story. And you know, like our methodology here on Project Illumin, as you've taught us, is you'll have the story of Ibrahim or Musa will be scattered throughout so many different yeah. chapters, and you've got to look for the differences. Because the difference is where it is in each chapter, that's the gold, that's the lesson. Well, none of that applies to Yusuf. Right. Um, so just some kind of comments and perhaps the reasons why. You spoke, that's good. No. That's a good question. No. Yeah, uh, the, the so I need to, I need to leave for the answer. <laughs> uh, uh, just, uh, just it. Yeah. Don't have a spill. <laughs> Just to give people a history, because every time there's a spill, I go, oh, that's a good sign. It's because I have spilled so much, and especially on the ship, that we had to turn it into a sign of, like, good fortune. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's all. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for spilling. Thank you for waiting. I'm expecting a great answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, as, as far as I, uh, as far as I can remember, um, Yusuf is, is mentioned in Surah Al-An'am, but only briefly, and only as, as sort of mentioning the lineage of um, Ibrahim and Ishaq, uh, and then Surah Yusuf itself. And I think it, um, I think this is because, in, at least in, in my opinion, that the, the whole impact of Surat Yusuf is this stark image from a child abandoned in a hole uh, in the desert to the height of to, to a position of, of, of great honor and power. And the unlikely set of events that take place. And I think if Surat Yusuf was taught, because Yusuf did not, unlike Musa, he did not lead armies, he did not lead a people. Um, Unlike nearly every other prophet, uh, he is not sent to a people that he tries to deliver a message to persistently and then, you know, suffers and to the point then the question is whether God's punishment will come upon these people or not. In many ways, Yusuf is a, 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 a remarkably 
um, what can I say, um, it, it decisively, I don't want to say unique because I, I mean, there are, but he, his, he's in prison up to the point that he becomes a young man in, you know, it, let's say even if we take the reports that he was in his 30s, which is probably the most likely. He spends in prison a long period of time. And if you look at the, the, the Quranic expressions, he is, his dawah is to prisoners. He actually invites the, the people in prison to, um, and he says, you know, you know, believing in many gods or what. So to, to, the, to the element that, in, especially in this time, it, it, it's a lot, many of the people that would end up in prison, they're, they're lost. I mean, so literally the next step is from prison to death. It's not common for people to, you know, accept political prisoners to have a comeback. Anyway, and then after that, his circle of dawah, again, is, he is Zulaikha when she eventually can converts or to reports that, there are reports, although conflicting reports that he preached to the, the king and the, the king became Muslim or not, depending on the report. But his circle of dawah is very limited. So what is his greatest accomplishment? Well, if you, again, as you said, story is so has has so so many elements of drama that it's very easy to miss the point of the story. You know, his his greatest achievement is not to be reunited with his father, uh, and it is not marrying Zulaikha. His greatest achievement is that he saved a people from starvation, and he saved the people from. A starvation because of just administration, equity, justice, integrity, honesty, and the, all the narratives of prophets which the Quran repeats are narratives of prophets that have attempted to lead the people and that we are exposed to different aspects of their dawah with their people here and there. So we see, you know, a, a, some of the, the, the moral faults of their people in this narrative, other aspects of the moral faults in this narrative. But Yusuf, it's like, in order to truly understand the story of Yusuf, and it's not just that you need to completely comprehend Surah Yusuf, but in my opinion, you have to understand Surah Yunus and Surah Hud, and especially Surah Hud, because Surah Hud is the one that comes right before, and it tells you that Allah stands with the just, which left alone without Surah Yusuf, 
could be left people puzzled. What do you mean Allah's standards are just? Well, you see that with Surah Yusuf. You see what, and that story, if it would have been treated from various angles, I imagine it would be easily corrupted. You know, people would turn it into something other than what it is. Um, and it is, it is unfortunate that, you know, so much in, especially at, you know, certain points of the time, where, you know, they turned into the whole thing about his union with his father and his, how father, his father was brokenhearted and cried over him and his marriage with Zuleikha and whether she became a virgin again or not and whether when now they reunited she looked like 20 years younger. But, I mean, all of it is fluff and completely marginal to the narrative. Um, and, and that's why Surat Yusuf was critical for a people who were going to establish the state that would be the nucleus for the birth of the Islamic Ummah. Um, and, and it is, you know, when you read, for instance, what uh, Omar bin Abdul Aziz, the so-called so the, the fifth rightly guided caliph, and his consistent references to Yusuf, it's, it's fascinating because he understood that what he's called upon is a system and a fair system and a workable system and a just system. And so he's constantly making these references to how Yusuf actually achieved equity. Yeah. Um, before we go on, um, can I ask the vicar for the surah? Oh, yeah. It is... I know Henry has a question, or the owner of Henry has a question. Yes. Okay, come on up. <laughs> but you have to bring Henry too. People are not going to see Henry. Okay, you have to show Henry on camera. <laughs> All these conditions. Actually. Yeah. Can you want to hold them? I'll hold. Okay. I'll ask a question. Oh, let's look at the problem. What did you leave here? Okay. Um, so, uh, um, when uh, Yusuf is in prison and then asks the guy who's going to go become the cupbearer to the king, oh, like, mention me to him, to remind him of my story. You said that the hadith on, on this are weak, the ones that refer to, oh, Yusuf got a sort of, you know, Allah allowed him to stay longer in prison because he asked for help from a human being instead yeah. of from Allah. 
Um, my question is, uh, I mean, even if the hadiths on this are inauthentic, is that gloss on the episode um, in like, I mean, what do you make of the gloss on the episode? Yeah. Because for, I, like, I, I'm just wondering what else would be the point of including that in the story? Um, and then it just seems to me related to the whole teaching of Yusuf that, you know, your, your wadi always has to be Allah. And, you know, along with the whole topos of, you know, prophets always being uh, tested in very difficult ways in order for them to always redirect their gaze to Allah. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the question is, is, of course, is, is that, and so many, so many Quran commentators were troubled by the, this whole, that Yusuf says to the man in prison who survives, that mention me to the king, and they, they were troubled by this because well, wouldn't a prophet just rely on God for deliverance? And why ask for a human being to intervene? And the entire jest uh, of Surat Yusuf is the um, is Allah's will and reliance on Allah's will and reliance on but so and so Rami is saying so you know even if the narratives about uh, attributed to the prophet that uh, Yusuf erred when he asked for this man to uh, intervene for him on his behalf even if these narratives are problematic still wouldn't the the point to me well there's a couple of things that uh, um we say and that is if you notice that that when he says mention me to your lord or to the 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 king the quranic commentary is fa'ansahu shaytanu dhikru rabbi that it was shaytan that made the man forget And so that's one aspect, is that it is not, one can say 
it is evidence of how shaitan can actually intervene to cause harm. And it's true that it, shaitan causes harm only if Allah allows shaitan to cause harm. But we, Allah, at the time that the person actually remembers Yusuf, it was under circumstances that that would make the king very receptive to a story about a man who knows how to interpret deeds. I mean, if if Allah wouldn't have allowed Shaitan to intervene at the time that Shaitan intervened, the king might have said at the time, "Oh, that's very interesting," but okay, and then and then did nothing. So. That's one thing. But the other thing is, although so many people say that Surat Yusuf, the topoi of Surat Yusuf, or the main thrust of Surat Yusuf, is this, is reliance on Allah. I, it, it, I mean, of course, reliance on Allah is, is, you know, is what we all do. And this is critical. But Surat Yusuf is not, um, is 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 more layered than that because Yaqub, who's a prophet, relies on Allah, but continues to worry about the fate of Yusuf till the very end, and continues to cry about. Yusuf until the very end. And Yaqub relies on Allah, but yet when he gets news about Yusuf and Benjamin, he says, didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you that you, you should never despair? Of, so there is this, there's this very human element um, we're not told a lot about Yusuf's suffering in the prison, in prison, although with the many years he's there, it, it, I mean, we do know narrative, various reports about how he would be, the, because he refused to succumb to the women, that he would be starved and denied water and so on. But even his his prayer that Allah, if you don't aid me, I might succumb to them. Again, it's reliance on Allah, but it is a human reliance. It's you can you can you can feel the struggle. Um, even when Muhammad bi Muhammad bi he was she, he was tempted. Until he saw a sign from his Lord. It is not just blind reliance, but it is an active agency exercised in that he's very human. He, he's tempted and then he, his conscious wakes up and he answers the call of conscious. So I see, I don't, the, those who basically said Surat Yusuf, the point of Surat Yusuf is to know 
that you just should just trust Allah and know that Allah will work things out. I think they missed the point. I think, in fact, Surah Yusuf, if you understand what, if you focus on what the point is, the human agency interacting with the reliance on Allah, that when the, the if the, the king had the dream and was too pompous or too arrogant or too high and mighty like the rulers of today, like the, 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 like the pharaoh of Egypt or the pharaoh that rules Egypt today, to ask someone in prison, imagine what would have happened if, if Yusuf would have said, well, don't worry about it, God is going to take care of it. Imagine what would have happened. If even the, the narrative about how Yusuf is united with Jacob, um, he doesn't just say, well, I trust that God will reunite me, reunite me with my brothers. He, recogni he recognizes his brothers. He figures, well, if I, I have to have the, the, create a reason to bring them, invite them to come to Egypt or to, to, to create the type of goodwill that would bring the entire family to Egypt. In fact, I mean, it, it's, he could have, you know, for the, sent a messenger to tell Jacob I'm there and created a great turmoil in the family. You know, so Jacob would say, okay, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to Yusuf, and the brothers would say, well, you know, we're staying back home. And, but in, instead, it, it, the, the remarkable wisdom of, you know, okay, earning their goodwill, giving them a, an extra camel, but saying, you know, I want to see proof that you're being truthful, returning their bartered good to them because they're worthless, saying, you know, uh, waiting until they come back because they knew that they were going to come back because the, 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 I think he knew enough about their brothers that they're, they're you know, they're the type of driven by self-interest that will bring them back and earning their goodwill so that the entire family moves to Egypt. There is much more than just Oh, God will solve it, and, and you you get that, and that's that's the part about Surah Yusuf. Often, Surah Yusuf in Sufi literature is said as if it's the a, a, a just a vindication of how a true seeker of the past should just not defend himself not you know not even attempt to defend any of his rights and so on and i i think that that's a misunderstanding of surah yusuf or a misreading of surah yusuf <clears throat> um so first of all of course thank you so much for another incredible halakha for the books um, so I think it seems safe to say that the system of governance and kind of overall system that the Prophet Yusuf 
had gained an administrative role in was one that was unjust, plagued with different forms of elitism and corruption. Um, so is there any more discussion that can be had um, kind of in relation to modern day discourses of working within the system in US politics, for, for example, um, because mm. it seems that up to this point throughout the halakas, we've gained a lot of clarity on the principle of never compromising. But I think this surah might be suggesting that, you know, even there's some nuance to the extent to that. I could be mistaken. But so I was just wondering if there's any more to see. On yeah, that. this is a really interesting question. Um, the reason it's really interesting is that so many in the Islamic tradition cite this precise point that Yusuf worked was um, to say that this is evidence that you can work with an unjust government if you can do good. Um, but um, I think as stated, it, it just flat like that without further um, theorizing or qualifying, that's a very misleading point because Yusuf didn't just work with an unjust government in any capacity, you know. He, he presented the king was a favor. He interpreted the dream. And when the king said, well, what do we do? He basically said, put me in charge and give me the authority. Now, if you can do that with an unjust ruler, and, and that king, by the way, is, is not necessarily, we, we don't know, other than some guesses about that king's name, we don't know how, how unjust or just he was. I mean, um, we just assume that they were all unjust to some extent or another, but, but what I, what I think the emphasis is that he positions himself so that he can do good. So he doesn't say, okay, well, I'll take any position, just get me out of prison. No, he, he actually says, in order for me to do, to do something, give me the authority, and, and, and he then, and so, but this is, there's a difference about serving American government and, and so on. Because, I, because your question is, uh, well, you know, how about working for the American government? And my answer to this is actually the following. The issue is serving a just, whether you ju it would serve justice or not, or you are able to do justice or not. There are so many Muslim governments that you can work for where you will, it will be practically impossible to, to serve justice. I can tell you, if you work for the Egyptian government, you will be part of an apparatus of injustice through and through. It is far more corrupt than anything America has ever seen or anything that England has ever seen or anything that so many non-Muslim governments have ever seen. The same can be said about 
Saudi government. The same can be said about the Emirati government. The same can be said about the Syrian government. I mean, sadly, so many so-called Muslim governments are so unjust that I would be happy to serve a non-Muslim, somewhat just government over them at any time. The question, and so in terms of the degrees of justice that are available over the world, do you work for the Chinese government, which you know, has a Holocaust against Muslims, or the American government, which compared to the Chinese government is far more just? So justice is, you have to have, you have to compare the amounts of justice that exist in the world. And the fact of the matter is, is whether we like it or not, in terms of what human beings have been able to achieve right now, as we live right now, is that many aspects of the American government, many aspects of the British government, many aspects of the Swiss government are far more, far more just than anything that exists in the world. And so the big question is that, well, what do you want me to do and can I achieve justice? You know, if, if you tell me serving the Trump administration where I sit with a bunch of Christian bigots and come up with a new paradigm for human rights that's based in Judeo-Christian tradition, then no, you know, I, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to play that legitimate role. If you tell me, go serve on a commission for religious freedom, but I have the right to be the sole dissenter and to protest that you're not treating Muslims fairly, yeah, I'll do it. Because I have the power to dissent. And I have the power to embarrass administration because they're not treating Muslims fairly. Um, you know, if someone tells me, we want to appoint you in, uh, as a judge in um, um, a, a court that does torts. No, it, it, I wouldn't do it because the system is so corrupt. I mean, the, the ability to do any good in, in the personal injury type cases. But if someone says, I'll appoint you on a court of appeals or you know, constitutional court, uh, state court, where you can actually make a difference, or even not that, even in a criminal court, where I can actually, you know, do some justice in, you know, not allowing rich lawyers to, you know, control everything and poor lawyers to, to have no fighting chance where I can instruct the jury and achieve some semblance of fairness. So it is that level of sophistication that is required. It's not just, you know, I feel that the, the more ignorant people are, the less sophisticated they are. And this world that we live in brutally punishes the ignorant. This world is merciless with those who are ignorant and unintelligent. And the sooner Muslims wake up to this reality, the better we'll be.
Okay, we're, I know we're down to our last moments. Um, so I, I know Cheyenne has a question, and then we had a really uh, good question um, from Hoda. So I think to try and give you flexibility to answer according to your comfort, I'm gonna, I wanted to um, read the question from Hoda and let Cheyenne ask his question. And okay. Then, and then I'll pick. Yeah, you, you, you do it. Uh, okay. So, Assalamu alaikum, thank you so much. Please forgive me if this was covered and I missed it. My question is on the latter part of Ayah 28. I have heard Muslims make reference to this Ayah by making unfair generalizations about all women. I would like to know your view on the meaning of this verse. I respect your opinion the most. Thank you. Oh, yeah, in the kind of yeah. Okay, this is actually a good question. I'm happy you asked that question. Should we, do you want to, let's let Cheyenne ask his question yeah. too. And then, I find this sort of really challenging, so I have a, a lot of questions, but I'll ask you just this one. Um, is, that's uh, 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 certainly in the 60s where Yaqub um, essentially asks them to go through different gates. Is, is what he's trying to achieve here, because I feel that he has knowledge. I think he knows what's going on. Uh, I could be wrong, but it feels like he knows what's going on, or at least he, ver he suspects. Do you think that him asking the, the sons to go through different gates is trying to disrupt a unethical groupthink in hopes that maybe while they're on their own that they rethink about their relationship toward their brother and their father and the mm. promises that they've made um, so that they may achieve a, a, a repentance equal to to Zulaikha, as one of them stays behind, but the rest of them unfortunately go back and continue their treachery. Uh, well, Shine's question uh, first was simpler. Um, I never thought of that, so I don't know. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, of course, you know, Shine is saying that when he, uh, Yaqub says, go, go in from different gates. Um, and of course, you know, the traditional, all the sources basically say that he was worried about envy. And I took a historical approach and I said that it's not likely that he's worried about envy, but worried about um, what normally, why people would enter from different gates and that's not to threaten the, uh, the native inhabitants. I mean, because we, we actually have this advice in in, in history um, when when you when you want to enter and not create a threat, you don't present a unified group because that could be that could cause considerable amount of worry and set things against you. So people go on the defensive. But Cheyenne's point is, is it possible that Yaqub was actually trying to get them to, by, by because his advice, there, there were, the, the gates as they were would mean if we subtract the younger brother and we subtract the brother remain behind so they would enter two from each gate instead of all from one gate. And Cheyenne's question is, well, could he have been trying to get them to break up 
so that they're not, you know, to, to, to not, to, to suffer or to try to minimize the impact of groupthink, where they all insist on their, you know, a, their, their hard-headed ways of constantly looking after their own best interests. Um, because a lot of times when you break up groups, people start thinking somewhat independently and, and, and perhaps developing a conscience. Um, I don't know. I, I never thought of that. Uh, but that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I would need to think more about it. Um, Um, Huda's question, I'm actually, it's, I'm happy she raised it because um, I too have heard this um, ayah where the, the, um, the Aziz, the, the, this is the husband of Zulaikha, when, and when after he, uh, Someone says, well, let, let's check the evidence. And if his shirt is torn from the back, then she pulled him. If it's torn from the front, and she was trying to push him away. And he sees that his shirt was torn from the back. And he says, that, that basically, and the way it's usually meant or used, is that this is part of the guiles of women. And you know the the guiles of women are, are are just truly um, powerful. And what's really disturbing is that so you hear this. I've heard it in footballs. I've heard it in classes. I've heard it in conversations, as if it was uttered by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And, and there's even a tradition in which someone tries to put it in the mouth of the Prophet a, 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 a tradition that I've actually written about um, because it's so problematic. Um, where the, 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 but it is in the same class of tradition where the Prophet is supposedly, or is reported to have said, that w women are, you know, the, 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 the most of the inhabitants of hellfire and that women uh, are deficient in intellect and deficient in religion, which if you know my, my writing, I've, I've spe written a lot to, to challenge these traditions because they're, they're clear lies and inventions. Um, so I have no doubt that the, 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 those who try to make it as a, to have the Prophet repeat this as if it is the opinion of the Prophet, that's an invention. This is uttered by Al-Aziz. So, I mean, not even as a, and, and he utters it basically as he recognizes that his wife is the guilty party, but he is going to ignore the fact that she's guilty for his reputation and for his political interests and he's going to imprison Yusuf anyway. I mean, 
ethically speaking, you could turn around and point to men and you say, azim. That, well, yeah, well, if our guile is great, well, your injustice is, or your, your injustice is greater than our guiles, because what more than imprisoning an innocent man? I mean, so it is, it is again, men jumping on phrases uh, that it is not even mentioned in the Quran with even a hint of approval. It is mentioned in the context of a man who is going to, man utters it as he is about to commit the greatest injustice, imprisoning an innocent man who he knows is innocent just to protect his reputation and his prestige and his power. Um, but the really repulsive thing is the way that it is, uh, you know, I've heard imams say it and say it to belittle women. And of course, you know, ignore the fact that this is not reported as Allah's opinion or as Allah's view or as the Prophet's view or, you know, anyone of authority. Uh, but that's the nature of things, unfortunately. It's, it seems a lesson for what you would expect to be out of the, the mouth of an unjust person. I mean, it's, isn't it an example of yeah, exactly I mean, what you shouldn't say? Yeah, you shouldn't say. You're an ethical yeah. person. So, but, but people forget that. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, it's exactly what if those who have lived under corrupt systems and unjust systems, it, I can imagine like what I think in my old days when I uh, corrupt Egyptian officials, I can imagine a corrupt official, Egyptian official as just uh, as he's about to send an innocent man to prison to protect his unethical wife, I can imagine them saying something very similar to that. Like, you know, I'll say something nasty to my wife, but destroy the life of an innocent man. Okay, you know. That's the way unjust people act in, in, in corrupt. So, and that's exactly what he does. It's like, oh, you know, bad girl. You know, that's you're so naughty. Okay, you go to prison. Great question. Thank you, Huda. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so we're at the end of our time, um, and again, this was just incredible and amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, wonderful to see you, and inshallah, um, have a wonderful rest of the weekend, and we will uh, actually, well, I don't know, I guess we'll wait to see. Did you want to make uh, an announcement about Tuesday? Wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, um, so um, we'll, we'll be in touch about what to do about Tuesday since this is the first week of classes. So um, just, yeah, just stay tuned. <laughs> okay, have a wonderful rest of the weekend, inshallah. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum. See you soon.